For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Ah, welcome back to Herd Tell. Okay, here's a guy that I've been relying on for a while. We just haven't talked to him for a while. We had his buddy Joe on a lot during the midterms, but we got a national election. That means we got to pull out all the elections daily. Big guns. He is the editor-in-chief and the founder, I think it's fair to say that, of elections-daily.com. Our very good friend, Eric Cunningham. How are you, sir? Been far too long. Yeah, I'm doing good. It has been a while. Uh, certainly has been. <laughs> yeah. And for those of you that don't know, elections-daily.com, put them in your rotation. A lot of straight data. They do a little bit of commentary, but mostly it's real data heavy stuff. They're great on elections. They saw that there was a need for a new way to cover elections. They just started doing it. Um, I call him the wrong kind of uh, mountaineer because he's an Appalachian state guy. But nevertheless, <laughs> y'all have been doing it. It's gotten bigger. We were just talking about it. You're on what your third major national mm -hmm. election now. For folks that aren't familiar with Elections Daily, just real quick, and we're going to get into this Senate race, what is it you do? Why is it different? And why has it caught on and you're having the success you're having? Uh, yeah, so we basically just started uh, around the 2020 cycle. There was a lot of election outlets at the time that were specifically focusing on the data side of things. And almost all of those outlets tended to be uh, partisan. They tend to be Republican or they tend to be Democrat. Not That's not a bad way to cover things. They're, you know, uh, daily cost elections on the Democratic side, RH elections on the Republican side, do a pretty good job covering the data, but they have their their partisan biases. They're from an angle of supporting Republican or supporting Democratic candidates. Um, so the data is obviously going to be inherently a little bit different than if you're doing it from a nonpartisan angle. Uh, we're not partisan. We don't have a particular. We don't have a side we're rooting for. We have an even number of staff members who are Republicans or Democrats or anything in between. Um, and we just we just try to cover things from an object objective angle, um, kind of removed from the sort of more partisan angle of the data, data politics uh, side of things. Yeah, Eric Cunningham joining us. Um, we're going to talk all your latest piece at elections-daily.com. You're taking up the Senate. All right, here's the overall dynamic. You tell me if this is how you're seeing it. We know the House is a real hot mess of craziness right now. Mm -hmm. The GOP is trying to figure out how they're going to do stuff. There's probably not going to be a lot of legislative going on. We know the McCarthy saga has kind of handicapped what he can and can't do. We'll put that to the side for a second. The Senate has been a little quieter other than maybe the Kristen Cinema thing and that sort of stuff. But that's by design. Your friend of mine, cocaine Mitch McConnell, he looks at these maps like mm -hmm. you do the Senate is very, very favorable to Republicans on paper in 2024. And that's why I think you're going to see them try to separate from what's going on in the House a little bit. I mm -hmm. think he's not going to blatantly run against the House GOP, but he is very much going to be like, hey, look at us and try to contrast 
That's the dynamic. The Republicans mm-hmm. are like, we've got a real good chance of getting the Senate back in 2024. Yeah, the, the Senate is a really interesting situation. We thought last cycle would be a pretty good one for Republicans. Democrats did manage to gain a seat. Um, and that was totally possible. The, the, the map was pretty thin for Democrats, but it was possible that they could, you know, hold their major states and flip a state, which they ended up doing. We didn't think that was the best, the like most likely scenario, but it was one that's certainly possible. This time around, it's a lot different. Um, the states that are up this time are the same ones that were up in 2018 and in 2012. These states are, to put it simply for Democrats, very, very bad. There's way too many Democratic states that are up. And there's virtually no competitive Republican states that are up. What do I mean by competitive Republican states? You would think that the swing states like, you know, Georgia, North Carolina, uh, those sorts of states that Democrats theoretically compete in uh, would be up. No, the only the only three, two states that we actually have on the board that Republicans have are Texas and Florida. Those are the two absolute best case states for Democrats to pick up this time. Neither of them are likely. Democrats have not won statewide in Texas in, I think, 30 years now. And Republicans, obviously, in Florida just won pretty much all their statewide races by 15 to 20 point margins. So we have these likely Republican. We think those are almost certainly going to go to the Republican side. But those are the best case states for for Democrats. Like the rest of the map here is just like states like Indiana, Mississippi, you know, North Dakota, states they, they had in 2018. Uh, and, and lost then, but very few they could actually take up. So what are the other states? They're all states that are basically Democratic states, and many of them are competitive. They're states that voted either for Donald Trump in 2016 or 2020, or they're states that have just been perpetually competitive. So Democrats have have three states they're defending that voted for Trump by double-digit margins or near double-digit margins. Ohio, which voted for Trump by about eight points. Uh, Montana, which voted for Trump by 16, and West Virginia, which voted for Trump upwards of 40 percentage points. Uh, They can only afford to lose one state because they have a 51 to 50 majority. If Republicans win the White House, that means 50-50 would be a majority. So they could only, they couldn't even lose a single state in that scenario. But even if they still win the presidency, they only need, they, Republicans only need to flip two states. And there are two states that Trump won by double digits. Those should be really good targets for Republicans. This is without even getting into you know, your Arizonas of the world, Wisconsin's, uh, Michigan's, Pennsylvania's, those sorts of states, Nevada. Like, this is a brutal map for Democrats. Just absolutely brutal. Yeah. Uh, Let's start with this, though. We got to go over the last election before we can go to the next one. The candidate quality was the story Mm -hmm. of the midterm election. There's just no denying it. You can spin it however you want to. People will tolerate a lot politically. They're just not going to tolerate crazy. Yes. That's the lesson here. I think to talk about that dynamic between Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy and what the GOP is fighting internally about right now, Mitch knows that lesson well. He doesn't want crazy on his Senate ballots. You're Mm -hmm. already seeing that fight now as people start declaring, people start running. That's kind of the inside baseball for the GOP is, yeah, we got a shot at it, but you know the more traditional folks like McConnell are like, please don't send me crazy, whereas yep. the firebrands are going to feel kind of enabled by the McCarthy thing and go, no, we need more people that are firebrands and hardliners and things like mm-hmm. that. That's what to watch for. Who's actually going to be running and who wins these primaries? Is that a fair way to lay this out? Yeah, it's really going to boil down to candidate quality. Not as much as last time because the states that were up last time were closer to the national you know, median. States like Wisconsin, North Carolina, 
uh, Pennsylvania, Nevada, Arizona, you know, Arizona states like that. Some of those are up this time as well, but you also have states that are out of the mix that would be even there's states Republicans flip even with a bad nominee. But yeah, last time Republicans uniformly in pretty much all their swing states nominated bad candidates or very bad candidates. We're talking in places like Arizona, they nominated Blake Masters. If you looked at him, you could just see kind of the problem. If you listen to him talk, look at him, look at his platform, this is the type of guy that scares voters off. And a great contrast here is Georgia, right? Brian Kemp is a very, very conservative governor. He's a very, very conservative individual. He's also not crazy. Voters were more than more than happy to give him a second term by eight percentage points, but they didn't vote for Herschel Walker. They voted for Raphael Warnock instead because Herschel Walker was just a bad candidate who scared voters. This is just fundamentally something Republicans have to realize is that they cannot sit out of these primaries. There's a reason Democrats intervene in almost every single primary in every state, regardless of, of what it is. They do not, they try and avoid letting their crazy wing get states and it tends to work they tend to at least get nominees who you can imagine being elected like the best republican recruit less cycle was probably adam laxalt I mean, he's still lost that that says a lot about just the, the state of republican recruiting states like ohio where jd vance was the nominee every other republican on this on the ticket was winning ohio by double digit margins high double digit margins and he managed to, to only win by seven that's embarrassing. In a, in, a, in a year that shifted Republican by about five percentage points or more, winning Ohio by a lower margin than Trump is really embarrassing. Just absolute clown show. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. And uh, Eric Cunningham joining us that, you know, these kind of polling isn't everything, but you, you're a data guy. You're a data mm -hmm. heavy guy. It's one of the reasons I rely on you and take your counsel on these things. Masters reportedly, and this is more than one person. He had some of the worst unfavorables people had ever mm -hmm. seen. Like you get that kind of stuff. Yep. You hear, you've already touched on some of the other things, you know, look at Pennsylvania with Master Nano for, for governor. And mm -hmm. then, you know, the, the Oz thing, which nobody with a brain thought was a good idea. You just, I hate to repeat myself. You just can't run crazy, especially mm -hmm. look, if everything's good in the world, you can get away with running some crazy when there's turmoil and questions and trouble in the world. People don't want crazy. I, kn mm -hmm. I know we can talk all the data and all the politics and all the trends and everything else for the average person, the normies, although I hate that term, it really is just that simple when they mm -hmm. go to a ballot a lot of times, isn't it? Which one yeah. of these person people do I want to hear from for the next couple of years on my TV? And it's not only that, it's people, it, they want politicians to be talking about the things that matter to them. Oz did not run a great campaign. He at least talked about that sort of stuff. Mastriano, 
was talking about election fraud the entire time. In Arizona, you had Blake Masters, who was just running a bizarre campaign that combines the worst of libertarianism and populism together into a single ticket. He, he seemed to be running his own campaign strategy, which was just basically posting one-minute-long ads of him yelling at a camera for a minute. It didn't work. It didn't work. And, his, and when he did speak policy, oftentimes it was stuff that was unpopular, like, for example, um, privatizing Social Security or banning all abortions or repealing um, Griswold versus Connecticut, which is the Supreme Court ruling that banned the uh, banned banning birth control, that prevented states from banning birth control. Like, all this stuff is just really concerning to voters who, who care about pocketbook issues. The economy was bad. Republicans should have done better, and they didn't because they nominated a bad slew of candidates who talked about things nobody cared about. This time around, look at what politicians are talking about instead of what's actually going on. It, it could be anything, but a lot of times people right now are talking about things that do not matter. They're talking about drag queens, or they're talking about gas stoves, or they're talking about any num uh, the green M&M. Like, nobody cares about this stuff. And honestly, it, it scares people when... On top of that, these people who don't who are talking about things they don't care about do genuinely scare them. That they, they genuinely feel uncomfortable voting for these people. That's something they're going to have to learn. They're going to have to learn to nominate candidates who people are comfortable voting for. They they had a good record of the gubernatorial races. No reason they can't apply the same standard to Senate races. It just requires them to put in the effort. When they did put in the effort, they did well. Alabama, Katie Britt uh, versus Mo Brooks. The establishment went in heavily for Katie Britt. They, they heavily supported her campaign. She's a normal person running against Mo Brooks, who's a very, very conservative House Freedom Caucus member. And it worked. He She beat Mo Brooks by a decisive margin in that primary, won almost every county in the state in the primary. This can work when they do it. They just have to bother to do it. Yeah, and that's a great example because they're looking at that like, you know, she could be a senator there for 40 years with the way mm -hmm. that state lines up. Eric Cunningham joins. Okay, let's do what you do best. You get in these things and dig them in. Let's just start with what was the hottest mess of 2022. It's probably going to be the hottest mess of 2024. Arizona, the land of Goldwater yep. and McCain. I, they made this thing purple in a big old hurry, and the Arizona GOP absolutely did it to themselves. Now mm -hmm. we got even more twist because Kristen Cinema, she hasn't announced what she's going to do, but she did announce that she's going to be an independent now, caucusing with the Democrats. Obviously a deal. Look, let's be adults here. There was a deal struck there because she kept all her committee assignments. So, you know, Schumer, mm -hmm. there, there's a lot of hemming and hawing by the power brokers that be where they're not exactly throwing her overboard yet. Ruben Gallego, which absolutely surprised nobody, he hit while the iron was mm -hmm. hot and immediately declared for Senate for the Democratic Party. This is going to be the top line what's going to happen race of this Senate cycle because of what happened last time and what looks like it's going to happen this time. I know the GOP side, but let's just start right there. What's this dynamic going to be, and does anybody really know? Um, it honestly just boils down straight up to who Republicans nominate and how good of a candidate Gallego is. Like, So here's the problem. Kirsten Cinema was elected in 2018 on a promise to be moderate. I don't think anyone expected her to keep that promise. She had a she was a liberal in her college years, liberal for most of the 2000s legislature, moderated to win a House seat. People assumed, I think Democrats assumed, that when Arizona did turn blue, she would do a, a Kirsten, a, you know, Kirsten Gillibrand, and go to the left. But she didn't. She stuck in the middle. She has really irritated people, despite having a 100% voting record with, with President Biden, for not going far enough on legislation. 
Um, Gallego is not a good candidate. I, I know a lot of people on Twitter, a lot of people on the Democratic side are trying to hype him up. He is very progressive, probably too progressive for Arizona. Uh, he has a track record of making really abrasive comments on social media, um, salty language, insulting pretty much everyone on the Republican side. And I think that would turn off suburban voters. The problem is, and so you have that, you have those two people there. You have Gallego and Cinema. If they're both running, that you know, we don't think Cinema wins, but she could eat up to five, ten percent of the vote. Um, you would think that would benefit Republicans, right? I mean, you you would think that, but we're not entirely sure because we're not sure what the Republican side is gonna look like. Yeah, and talking to Eric Cunningham, there's reporting out of Arizona. Look, this isn't my opinion. This is people in Arizona that tell me these things. I just sit here and talk, but I do talk mm -hmm. to people there. There's getting to be some resentment over the state-run Arizona GOP, even by Republicans out there. Mm -hmm. They're getting really tired of this. If they run another crazy person, and I'm, and that's I'm a, that's, sorry. There's a good chance. There's a good chance they there's do that. There's a great Four, chance of it. Four of the five candidates who are even considering a run are lunatics. If they run another crazy person, I don't know how you even lay this race out because, you know, Gallego, he's abrasive. The propensity for him to say something really off the wall that offends people is probably really, really high in this race. Cinema mm -hmm. could hold the course and wind up being the most the most normal person mm -hmm. in this race. Is there a path for her to survive this if everything around her goes crazy and she just kind of keeps her head and she keeps kind of that? I know people roll their eyes. Having the support of the U.S. Senate as a sitting U.S. Senator is a mm -hmm. big thing. That is not nothing to sneeze at. If they don't particularly go yeah. after her, does she have a path here? I think the gambit that she's making is that she can convince Democrats to stand down and not nominate someone. That's what I think her gambit is. Do I think it will work? No. But if Gallego proves to be this abrasive, as I expect he will be, and this inept, um, I do think it's it's possible you could see an effort from Democrats to try and make sure that cinema. Uh, to try to either keep their nominee off the ballot or to have cinema win the Democratic primary in some manner and then run as an independent anyway. That would be, but again, that'd be very unlikely because cinema is very unpopular with Democrats. Democrats are unhappy that she voted for uh, two trillion in new spending instead of five trillion in, in new spending. Um, we're, we're, it's relative relative standards here. But yeah, we, that's her best chance that we would give her very low chances. We have this as a toss up right now. Is the Republican side potential candidates Carrie Lake, Blake Masters, Andy Biggs? It's it's not good. It's really bad. And folks are going to recoil that you'd call them lunatics, and that's probably a little far. People like Mark Lamb, mm -hmm. who thinks that local sheriffs have more authority than the federal government. Like we're, we're not exaggerating. Yeah. These are the, these are off the wall bonkers people that don't yeah. need to be anywhere near elected office. Yeah, no, seriously, Lamb is a great example. There's a he is he is aligned with a movement of sheriffs who are convinced that the supreme authority in the United States is not the Constitution, but is local sheriffs. This is ridiculous. This is just straight up ridiculous nonsense. And he adheres to this. He's a supporter of this. He's gone to conferences supporting this viewpoint absolute lunacy and yet this could be the republican senate nominee like in that scenario is gallego that is his propensity to say dumb things on social media doesn't matter as much as the sheriff potentially you know supporting j6 and thinking that share that he is the supreme lawgiver in the united states like it, it's it this is why we have it as a toss-up instead of leans republican if this is a competent republican field we could have moved it to leans republican but we didn't because this field is bad yeah, it's going to be interesting to watch. Let's go to Montana, which has almost the opposite problem. Uh, John Tester, Democrat, quite popular, 
popular bipartisan wise across the u.s senate and again people roll their eyes but that's a big deal like people like mm -hmm. tester they like working with he's one of those guys that has a reputation you can work with him right mm -hmm. so they're not he's not going to get any fire from his you know backside from washington but this is almost the opposite problem where tester's a democrat it's a it should be a republican pickup on paper but the republicans might infight their way into tester surviving here yeah so Montana voted for Trump by about 16 points. It has been more Republican than that before. It shifted a little bit left in 2020, which tends to happen in Montana. They tend to swing against incumbent presidents of either party uh, to some degree. Um, they Democrats started to compete here statewide in 2020, and they lost. They lost the Senate race by 10 points with the popular governor. So you would think this would be a pretty easy race. The problem is the Republican side isn't great on top of all you said about Tester. He has, last we checked, he has about a 60% approval rating, which is really good. That's what you would need to win a state like Montana. Uh, the Republican field is basically, as of right now, Ryan Zinke and Matt Rosendale. Matt Rosendale is one of the leading House Freedom Caucus members. He is abrasive. He lost to Tester in 2018. And then Ryan Zinke is a scandal-plagued former cabinet official who only won a, a House district by three that he should have been winning by 10, 10 or 15. Not a great field on the Republican side. There could always be more that jump in, but this is what it looks like right now, and it looks like the Club for Growth is really going to go in for Rosendale. Yeah, it's going to be very interesting to watch. Eric Cunningham joining us. Let's go to Ohio. Look, here here we these are people that came up in 2018. This is a very different map. Ohio is very different. This used mm -hmm. to be a swing state. It's no longer a swing state. It's solidly Republican. It almost double digits probably by the time we get to the next cycle depending on who the presidential nominees yep. are. Sherrod Brown's a weird one because he wasn't supposed to win the first time. What's the landscape for him coming up this time? And like you said, again, we're coming out of a, a thing where J.D. Vance won, but he underperformed. Mm -hmm. What's the landscape looking for Sherrod Brown right now? Of our three toss-ups, this is the one we feel most confident will go to Republicans. If we did tilt ratings and we don't because they're bad, this would be in the Republican column. Um, the, the reason we're holding it at toss-up right now instead of leans Republican is we do want to see the Republican field solidify a bit more. Both of the announced Republican nominees, or both of the, um, Matt Dolan is the only one who's announced right now. I think that he would win this race pretty easily, I think. But he'd have a pro he'd have a problem winning the primary. He's a bit bit more moderate than a lot of Republicans would like. Uh, we, we think the Ohio Secretary of State, LaRose, is going to announce. He would also be a really good nominee. Um, the risk comes if Republicans nominate someone a bit more on the nutty side, which is always possible. This could be a clown car primary field like it was last time. Vance only got about a third of the vote. In his primary win, uh, which is how you got someone like him running, we do think this time will be different, and we don't and we don't think Sherrod Brown is that popular. His approval is about plus eight, which, when you consider Ohio, is about Trump plus eight. That's not where you would probably want it to be. You would want it to be more than a sixty point margin, you know, about six, you know, fifty five to forty five. It's possible he wins. That's why it's a toss-up. But we really do think that when the Republican field solidifies, this will be one that we move into the Republican column eventually. Brown is a good fit for the Ohio of 10 years ago, but it's increasingly difficult for someone as progressive as him 
to actually be able to hold on in the state, especially against a candidate who is not like it was last time, Jim Renasi, who did not run a campaign. This time he's going to have someone who will be running a campaign. Yeah. Eric Cunningham joining us. Uh, Michigan, a state that uh, is now went from swing state to pretty solidly blue in 2022, kind of surprised some folks. And then Senator Debbie Stabnow surprised folks by standing down. She's going to retire. However, this is one of the states where the Democrats actually have a pretty deep bench of pretty mm-hmm. good candidates. This is going to be a tough pickup for Republicans. But how do you see this race? So this is a leans Democratic race right now. Um, Democrats have a great bench. They have a bunch of qualified nominees to choose from because they've won wave elections there in 2018 and 2022. Um, they did really, really well in those years because Republicans nominated bad candidates. Uh, it's pretty much that simple, especially in 2022. The Republican side of the field, um, this would be a tough state even if, you know, even if they had a good field. They don't have a good field this time. Uh, John James is about the only genuine rising star they have, and he's already lost a Senate race twice. He lost in 2018 and in 2020. Running for a third time in three Senate cycles would just seem like a, not, a, not a great idea. I think you would want to wait a little bit longer to do that, which leaves Republicans as basically a field of nobodies or D-list former House members. Someone like Peter Mayer would be a great Senate candidate, but he lost his primary. He wouldn't win statewide. Um, we're pessimistic about this. We do have it at Leans Democratic because for, at the moment, the field, we don't know who Republicans are nominating, but we do know Democrats are going to nominate someone who's probably pretty good. Probably Alyssa Slotkin uh, would be one of the ones that would be up there. We're, we're pretty confident. Yeah, Eric Cunningham joining us. Let's go out to Nevada, a state that everybody needs to be paying attention to because of a couple things. One is they're going to take a test run with ranked choice voting and things like this. Number two is they may be getting bumped up on the primary calendar as well. Mm-hmm. Cortez Masto survived out here, but this is Nevada's starting to trend towards kind of like Arizona, where the state GOP should be doing better than they are, but they're in a bit of a shambles right now. That could be more of the story than the actual candidates when it comes. Look, it's Vegas and Reno and everything else when it comes to Nevada. And the state GOP is just not doing well in Nevada right now, even though they probably on paper should be doing much better. That's kind of mm-hmm. the story out there right now, isn't it? Yeah, they won. They won one statewide race last time. They won the race for governor, but they lost everything else. Uh, worth noting, the ranked choice voting thing that only happens if it passes again by ballot initiative this time. Their top, the top five idea is genuinely terrible, and I hope it does not pass. That being said, we're giving Democrats the benefit of the doubt here. Leans Democratic. You know, the state has trended Republican in the past four elections, presidential elections, but Republicans just can't seem to win statewide. They can't really cross the gap. It's kind of like the North Carolina of on the Democratic side right now. Or it's just Republicans have not been able to cross that gap. They have like they have a couple of interesting potential choices, but we do think you know Rosen's a pretty decent incumbent, and Republicans are going to really need to prove something here. Laxalt was leading almost every poll before he lost, and so we're going to have to consider that again this time. Yeah, Eric Cunningham joining us. Let's go to Wisconsin. I find Senator Tammy Baldwin to be an absolute enigma because she is absolutely, without any question, one of the absolute best. Democrats in the U.S. Senate on camera. Like, it's not even close. She's fantastic mm-hmm. on interview shows. She's great on Sunday shows. She's great on any kind of media hits. She's great. They never use her for hardly anything. Now, I don't know if some of that's her own making or whatever, but it, it, it's almost like she's the forgotten U.S. Democratic senator, but she's got a great backstory. She gets stuff done. She's well-respected by her colleagues. 
and yet you almost never hear about her. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a weird situation with her, but she's up for re-election. Mike Gallagher is a, a well-known name in GOP circles that would be a very stiff challenge for her. Mm -hmm. What do you make of Tammy Baldwin? What do you make of this race? Baldwin is, is the other member of the most dysfunctional group of senators in the United States. Uh, she is a very, very, very liberal senator, one of the most liberal. Her colleague, Ron Johnson, is one of the most conservative. They rarely agree on anything, and they can barely accomplish anything together. Baldwin is pretty good. She's she's won twice before. She won in 20, 2012, slightly worse than Obama, and then she won in 2018 by a wide 11-point margin. Although, again, that was a D-plus-eight year. If Gallagher is the nominee, this is when we probably shift into the toss-up column fairly soon. But Baldwin is not a bad candidate by any means. She generally she knows what she's doing, so there is a good reason to give her the benefit of the benefit of the doubt here. She is a she's one of the group of Midwestern Democrats that seem to know their states pretty well and are able to to work within that within that um, flexibility range. I guess you could call it. Yeah, she's one of those where. If you set them down in chairs and went over it point by point, she's probably as progressive as some of the squad members on a lot mm -hmm. of things, but she has the common sense not to beat you over the head with it. And she knows how to communicate. And it's not just buzzwords. She believes stuff, but she mm -hmm. also knows how to communicate. It's kind of like a Sharon big Brown. deal. Yeah, it's kind of like Sharon Brown. The Midwest thing, like you call it the Midwest, that's a real thing. Like that, that attitude, that way of communicating. I know people kind of, you know, sometimes we make fun of it a little bit or, you know, the all shucks stuff. That's a real thing. And when you're mm -hmm. talking about something like the U.S. Senate and a statewide race and Johnson underperformed, by the way, even though he survived, that's something we should probably mention here mm -hmm. as well. That's a real thing. She connects with people and she's compelling and she's got the backstory. So even though she's very progressive, it doesn't hit you as something that's abrasive or that's not the first thing you think of when you think of Senator Tammy sure. Baldwin. That's a big deal. Yeah. Honestly, it's pretty similar to her colleague, you know, in the state, the state across from her, you know, Amy Klobuchar or Sherrod Brown in Ohio or Debbie Stabenow in Michigan. They tend to know their states really well and have done a good job skating along about as far as they can go. All right, let's go over to the Keystone State, Pennsylvania. This was another hot mess in 2022. We already talked about Oz. I don't want to talk about Mastriano anymore ever. Hopefully he just goes away. Mm -hmm. What is this Senate race going? Is this going to be, I hate to call it a return to normal, but it almost feels like everybody in Pennsylvania just wants to have a normal Senate race here. Mm -hmm. Are they going to get one? They might. Uh, Mastriano's talked about running for Senate. I don't think he will. I don't think he could win a primary, given how embarrassing his his performance was but the big issue is that casey is not as ideologically distinguishable from other democrats as he used to be especially on abortion where he's pretty much just a standard democrat now but he does have a popular brand in the state um he has a popular name and republicans have a bench in in pennsylvania that's not the best um we have this likely democratic we do think that this is one that that casey should win uh, if Republicans nominate a good nominee, for example, Dave McCormick is considering is making overtures, he'd be a pretty decent candidate. This is one that could be competitive, but we would not have this at the top of the list on the Democratic side. We think that 
it may be a normal Senate race, but Republicans are going to have to put in a lot of effort to flip the state, especially against Casey, who, who's, again, knows what he's doing. He knows the state very, very well. Josh Shapiro won the governorship. He's gotten a couple of really quick, easy wins. Um, he seems to have hit the ground running as a governor. He's There's another guy. He just knows the state, it seems mm -hmm. like. How much is that going to affect this race as well? Because he 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 succeeded so well. That race with Mastriano, you already called it embarrassing. I agree with you. I think the Shapiro factor might be a real thing on this coming race. I mean, it, it kind of depends. Let me see how popular he is. When, when we talk about these overtures, he is actually like appointing Republicans to key positions in his administration, which is a a genuinely a thing I think is good. I think more people should do that on both sides of the aisle. I, I really applaud that. I think that's a really, actually a really good um, peace offering gesture to the other side to, to give, to give your, to give your opponent side qualified people an opportunity to have a say in your administration. That's the sort of thing that can get you bipartisan respect. And that's something I don't think any Republican in Pennsylvania would ever reciprocate. It's going to be really difficult for Republicans in Pennsylvania to start competing statewide again outside of the you know, presidential level until they get their act together and start you know electing candidates or nominating candidates who fit within the real fit within the state's median which is not uh you know the middle of nowhere counties you know Pennsylvania, for lack of a better term it's the suburbs it's people who could be electable in pittsburgh pittsburgh suburbs and philadelphia suburbs yeah tone setting is what i was getting at with shapiro and i think he's setting it up where it's going to be kind of hard to rail against him if he's popular and mm -hmm. so a uh, little jujitsu there all right florida Rick Scott has been all over the news for all the wrong reasons in Republican circles because this guy's racking up more L's than Elmo on Little L Day on Sesame <laughs> Street lately. He's one of the richest people in the Senate. He's frustrated. He's not getting the upward mobility he thought he would. And now he's become something of a punchline amongst his own in group in the Senate. I don't think he's in danger of not winning reelection. This is a very interesting person to keep an eye on because he's got a lot of money. He's got a lot of time on his hands and he's an extremely frustrated individual right at the moment that wants somebody to pay attention to him. That can be a dangerous thing. Yeah. Um, again, we have Florida likely Republican. This is a state Republican should win. Rick Scott should win it. He has won his previous three elections by less than a, by about a percentage point or less, which is really crazy when you think about it. Um, Scott was the NR, NR, or NRSC chair for the last cycle. He was in charge of basically all the recruiting and donations. And the result was, frankly, gross mismanagement of the NRSC. Uh, he completely opted out of spending in any primaries at all, leaving that to Mitch McConnell. Uh, he basically just took a position that any nominee they put out is a good nominee. He spent a lot of money. We're talking millions, tens of millions of dollars on efforts that ultimately did not achieve anything of value. And so a lot of, and then he, after this, he had the gall to run for majority leader, which he lost by a wide margin because of course he would. So he's in a bad position right now. He did genuinely think he could be a presidential contender. I think nobody except him thinks that's actually possible at this point, but he does know Florida really well. He, he does know Florida pretty well. He speaks Spanish. He won a Senate race in 2018. He beat an incumbent Senator in a democratic plus eight wave year, which is just something that does not happen. You do not see States like this flip. Um, you know, I don't think we've ever seen a state flip like that in a Senate in a long time. And so we have it likely, but we think he's, it all depends on the Democratic nominee. It depends on if Scott has actually damaged his brand in his own state. And it also depends on how close to the median Florida comes back to. We don't think Republicans are going to win by 20 points 
2024 like DeSantis did. But we, if it's going to be closer to 10, Scott should be fine regardless, even if he has suffered a little bit. Yeah, let's go down to Texas. Um, you can tell Ted Cruz is up for re-election because he all of a sudden in the last week or so started talking about term limits again as he runs for his third term in the U.S. Senate. Mm -hmm. Hi, Ted Cruz. How are you doing, sir? Um, the problem here isn't that he wouldn't be in a competitive race normally. He squeaked by with just under 3% last time to much fanfare. There's just absolutely nobody on the Democratic bench in Texas that's going to win a statewide election right now unless something really screwy happens. That's pretty much the long and the short of mm -hmm. it, right? Yeah, Texas Democrats are a joke of an organization um, similar to Florida. They have not won a competitive, they have not won a statewide race in 30 years. They've not come close aside from one Senate race in 20, 2018 where, where that was basically more of a Ted Cruz thing than a better work thing. Uh, we'll believe this happens when we see it. Again, we do think this is going to be within 10 points in all likelihood, especially with Cruz as the Republican nominee. But this is not, a, this is like when the best Democratic target in the country is Texas, that's telling you how bad things are. This is not a state that should be at the top of the list, but this is literally their best potential, their best state to go after. That's a sad testimony. Okay, you also list all the safe uh, states. We're not going to go through all of them, but there's a couple really interesting ones we want to touch on. I'm quick. interested, though, before, while we get out of life, yeah. you have not mentioned West Virginia yet, which I, we have. I was saving it to the end, but okay. <laughs> Fine, we'll do it now. Uh, look, this is all about whether or not Joe Manchin runs again. If he runs again, Democrats have a shot. If he doesn't run again, this thing's going red um, pretty quick. It also depends on who's in the field. Um, but I, of course I follow this one pretty closely for a lot of reasons. Give me your take on it first and then I'll share you. So mind. our take of this is pretty simple. If Joe Manchin loses even 5%, if even 5% of Trump voters stop ticket splitting, Joe Manchin loses. And his approval rating is in the, in the tank right now. It's about 40% according to morning console. I've seen lower. We think it is, we have, we have it likely Republican. We do think Manchin is the decisive underdog here. His approvals could recover. He's got two years to, you know, a year and a half to actually get his approvals back to where they were. But this is a guy who only won by three last time. He's going to need to significantly revamp his image from where it was. Is it possible? Sure. He's no longer the only vote in the middle. Um, he's one of two now. He, he can still afford to flake off now because they have 51 senators. But it's going to be a struggle. It, I mean, this is one of those states that we think if he does not run, or if the Republican nominee is Jim Justice, which it looks like it very well could be, he's really making overtures of a Senate run. This is one where he, they could really get out of control for Democrats. This is why we said we start out with Republicans thinking, flipping one seat. They only need to flip one seat to get to 50. If they flip two, that's 51. We already think they're going to get to 50. Um, unless Democrats can win Texas or Florida, we really think this is a they. There's a very good chance Republicans even get a bare minimum of 51. Yeah, so here's the story on this, and I'm not going to do the prediction game. I'm just going to lay you out a couple of the things that are going on in West Virginia for folks that don't pay attention to it other than when Joe Manchin pops up on a Sunday show, okay? Mm -hmm. There is no statewide, with all due respect to my Democratic friends who I have on this program and trying to get them on now, there is no statewide Democratic Party in West mm -hmm. Virginia right now. They didn't even field 20-some seats for the House of Delegates. It's, like, it's, it, it's non-existent. The, there's two new people in charge of the party, and I think they're the right people, but it's going to take... This, this is going to take a couple cycles for them just to get competitive again at all. I'm talking just fielding mm -hmm. candidates, not even winning. He is the Democratic Party. And don't kid yourself. Again, this is not my opinion. This is a source. If he wants $100 million from the national fundraisers, he's going to get it if he decides mm -hmm. to run. He'll be 76 when he swears in for this term if he decides to run again. So he's getting up there. He doesn't really like the Senate. 
a lot of this is going to depend on who the Republicans put up. Justice, I can't imagine why Justice wants this job because he's a part-time governor. He coaches his high school mm -hmm. basketball. They had to pass bills in the legislature to make him come to Charleston to the Capitol. Um, yeah. COVID actually saved his administration because he, he rose to the occasion on COVID. I will give him that. But he doesn't want to govern full time. You can't be a part time senator. I don't know mm -hmm. why he'd want this job, but he's got a lot of really powerful people in his ear about it. So we'll see what happens there. Mooney's already declared to run because he's got ethics investigations problems coming down the pike and he wanted to mm -hmm. get a hold of that one. Mansion despite Mansion might run for reelection just to fight. Oh, Mooney yeah. Because they hate each other. Mansion endorsed uh, Mooney's primary, uh, David McKinley in the primary against Correct. Mooney. Um, he, yeah. that's, that's like, he, he tried to intervene in a Republican primary. That's how much he does not like Mooney. <laughs> yeah. He despises Mooney. So that's a dynamic to keep on. Here's the other one to pay attention to a little bit. And people are going to roll their eyes a little bit. You mentioned split ticketing since they got rid, look, they got rid of straight ticket voting right about the time West Virginia went red. Those mm -hmm. two things are not accidental. Okay. But Joe Manchin has gotten split ticket voting. Here's the dynamic everybody needs to pay attention to in the state of West Virginia. They have super majorities. There's only 13 Democrats in the entire House of Delegates and state Senate combined. Everybody and their mother is running for West Virginia governor on the Republican side. Powerful people, big name people. Shelley Moore Capital, the U.S. senator, her son's running. Um, Miller, the U.S. rep, her son's running for governor. There's going to be a hot mess of people running for these seats because they know on the Republican Party, you've got a good chance of winning. Mm -hmm. You've got super majorities that aren't getting a lot of stuff done. There's some controversial stuff going through the House of Delegates. Just because it's a super majority doesn't mean there ain't going to be infighting. There is a dynamic here where whoever they put up for governor, it could get messy on the Republican side. Mm -hmm. I know on a phone and I know in an online poll, people are saying they're tired of Manchin. For the first time in about 20 years, going in a booth and voting against him, that's a little different, and I'll mm -hmm. believe it when I see it. That's just what I'll leave. Yeah, yep, and and that's understandable. We're just looking at it from the data side of things, and we struggle to find a scenario where, unless it, like that happens, where he wins. Randy, we, we struggled to find a scenario where Susan Collins wins in 2020, and she did. But if if it like if West Virginia swings as much as as Maine did from 2014 to 2020, Mason loses by 15. Like. He make no mistake here. He is running an uphill fight, especially in a presidential year. Uh, it, it's totally possible that, that there is some stuff that happens. That's why there's two years. These are ratings that are out right now. These are going to change in a year. They're going to change in, in two years when they actually have the election. We're a little bit early on these ratings. So it's entirely possible that we're, you know, we're looking back on this a year and a half from now and Republicans have a clown show nominee for governor or and nominated Alex Mooney for Senate under an ethics investigation. Yeah, that's a scenario where we change this rating. That, that would be what I would say there. Yeah, and I think the presidential candidate is going to really matter here, too, because I don't mm -hmm. think whoever it is in 2024 is going to get a plus 42 again. Yeah. So that could be a factor as well. But I agree with you. I think it's an uphill fight. I think the odds are against him. I've just been doing it too long. I, I'll believe that they're going to get rid of Joe mm -hmm. Manchin when it actually happens. So just keep mm -hmm. an eye on that. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. 
From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on the Hurt Tell Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutan. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find The Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcasts or at www.thesweatypenguin.com. Two ones I want to touch on real quick. California, Diane Feinstein hasn't officially said she's not going to run. Look, there's been rumors for years about her health, and I don't want to get into that just out of respect, but it's it's past time for her to go. We'll just leave it at mm-hmm. that. A lot of big names that are in a lot of media, especially social media, news media, running for this thing. Where do you put this race? Uh, we have a safe Democratic, but so here's the thing with California. California has a jungle primary, an open primary system. It's a bad system where the top two candidates, regardless of what party they are in, make uh, get you know are, are on the general election ballot. It's very possible that Democrats have both candidates going into November, which is terrible. That's absolutely terrible. It should not happen. And when it does happen, Republicans simply do not vote. Same happens the other scenario. There are elections where Democrats are locked out. There are going to be so many Democrats running for this seat. Adam Schiff is already running. Uh, Barbara Lee is considering running. Katie Porter's already running. Like everyone in California is going to want the seat and it's going to turn into yet another fight between the Bay Area Democratic establishment and SoCal. And the Bay Area is going to win. Like don't don't get don't get any surprise. Don't you know get anything surprised there. Katie Porter is not winning this thing. Uh, this is not simply not how it works in California. I think it is very possible that we go into this race. There are two Democratic candidates. And if Republicans really wanted to, they could control which of the two is chosen. I don't think they'll have any real say whatsoever. Last time this happened, the choice was Kamala Harris or Loretta Sanchez. And they were not Loretta Sanchez. Um, this was just Kamala Harris and one of the Sanchez sisters. And they went for Kamala Harris inexplicably, even though Sanchez is far less liberal than, than Harris. So basically, this is going to be this is going to come down to whichever the Democratic Party establishment in California wants, and they're probably going to be the nominee. One name to really look out for is London Breed, the mayor of San Francisco. Um, if she's interested in the Senate seat, you're going to see all all of the Pelosi team fall behind her. Most of the Bay Area, and it's going to be really difficult for another Democrat to, to challenge that. Yeah, and rumor is all that uh, bad press Katie Porter's been getting might have been coming out of San Francisco, and we'll mm-hmm. leave it at that for right now. Yeah, wink, wink, nudge, yeah. nudge. Cali- yeah, the, the, that, that's all internal. Dem- yeah, California is two Democratic parties at war with each other: the ones in, in Los Angeles area and the one in the Bay Area, NorCal. 
And the Bay Area got a lot of the money right now, and mm-hmm. SoCal is not happy about it. We'll have to talk about that another day. One more on the Republican side. I think low-key, this might be one of the uglier primaries, and not a lot of people are going to pay attention to it, but you paid attention to it because you used to pay attention to this stuff. Indiana is going to be an interesting little proxy war. It's already kind of getting ugly if you're really mm-hmm. paying attention to it. This thing is going to blow up. There's mm-hmm. no way this one doesn't get ugly, right? Yeah, so Indiana's an open re- open seat. Uh, incumbent Senator Mike Braun is going to run for governor, uh, which leaves the seat open. This is a safe Republican state. Democrats are not going to win here. They do not compete statewide in Indiana and cannot compete statewide in Indiana at this point. The real question is who Republicans nominate. Uh, Jim Banks is already running for Senate. He is a no-name House member from uh, from uh, Fort Wayne, I'm pretty sure, uh, in north northeastern corner of Indiana. Uh, he has tried to make himself the king of the populists, and it's uh, and that kind of floundered after 2022, where the populist candidates all kind of uh, dissolved into ash, as it were, and, and lost their elections. Uh, he is now running as a strong, harsh conservative. He's trying. He's really emphasized the word conservative in his campaign thing. Uh, the the populists of the world, the Marco Rubios, are all falling behind him. People who want to shift the Republican Party to the left on economics, um, really falling behind him, along with a bunch of other Midwestern Republicans. Uh, the big one to watch here is Mitch Daniels. He is the former governor of Indiana, very, very popular, one of the most successful governors in state history, current president of Purdue University, where he's had a entire tenure, has froze tuition, run a really successful college there. Uh, this is the sort of guy you want in the Senate. He's a bit up there in age, but if you're looking at someone who you think could be an effective senator, Mitch Daniels would be one of them, and he's not a squish. He is genuinely very conservative. He was known as Mitch the Knife back in the day because he was just cutting, he cut spending and cut all this. I mean, he was just a, a very, very good governor. The club for growth, growth is aggressively going to spend against him, and they're going to spend on banks. You may wonder why they spend for the less conservative guy in the race. Well, it's because the the president of the of the club for growth was the nominee for governor in two thousand in Indiana. He lost by fifteen percentage points. Uh, that's embarrassing. He ran for governor again in two thousand four and had to drop out after George Bush endorsed Mitch Daniels. He is still mad about this. That is why they're spending against Mitch Daniels, is because he is personally angry that Mitch Daniels got the Bush endorsement in 2004 over him. Yeah, but let's be fair here. Mitch Daniels, uh, whatever you think of him, he has the personality of a beige hallway in a nondescript government building, Mm -hmm. and he's 74 and he's been out of the game for a while. I mean, you got to think Banks is probably the odds-on favorite here, but I think the flame war here could have some repercussions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the only polls that have been out have shown Daniels up big, but this is without spending, and this is also without people knowing who Banks is. Again, he is a pretty obscure congressman from from an out of from an out of Indianapolis area of Indiana. He's not well known in the state, and he's not well known nationally. Um, so. It's, he's going to need to define himself, and that's, I think, why you're seeing him use the word conservative over and over and over again. I think he used the word conservative like 20 times in his campaign video uh, because he wants to emphasize he's a conservative and now not a populist. I would say it probably would lean towards him in the end, but we really don't know. We don't know if Daniels is going to run. We don't know how aggressive he's going to be, and we don't how and we don't know how vicious the political machine in Indiana will be against Jim Banks. We really don't know. Let me give you the comp here, Ted Budd. Mm-hmm. Because Ted Budd ran a campaign where it was just conservative everything, a Trump endorsement that came out of the blue sky, and a, and a tidal wave of club for growth. That's the only campaigning that guy did. That's different, though. Because in, in North, but in North that, Carolina, that's what he's thinking. That's what they're thinking. The problem is that nobody in Indiana thinks Mitch Daniels is a rhino. Nobody in, nobody in Indiana thinks Mitch Daniels is a conservative. 
there are a lot of Republicans in North Carolina who never liked Pat McCrory to begin with because he was the mayor of Charlotte. He was a moderate and he ran for governor. He, he ran it as moderate. He was, he was, you know, he was, he was slow to do a lot of things the legislator wanted to do. There were reasons Republicans did not like Pat McCrory because he, he was perceived for years by conservatives in North Carolina as insufficiently conservative. That is why that spending worked. If you try and replicate that model against Mitch Daniels just because he's old and try to say Mitch Daniels is a rhino, like, good luck with that. Everyone in Indiana knows who Mitch Daniels is. And I don't think any of them, you ask a Democrat in Indiana to think Mitch Daniels is a rhino, like you ask, you ask someone who lived under his administration, it's going to be a challenge. The age thing is probably what will work better. Age and residency, that's always how it works in Indiana. Residency in particular, if they really want to go after him, go after him residency. Will they be smart enough to? I don't know. They seem really convinced. Like they seem to really in on we can just McCrory the guy, but that's that's trying to transfer a dynamic from a state to another state when the people involved are just not the same thing. Right, but the people that are involved are the same people that are involved in that. They've got a success, and now mm -hmm. he's putting it with his personal vendetta. Right, and right. that's the dynamic. That's they're trying to transfer there. the model to a state where it's, they're trying to transfer the model to cast anyone as a rhino rather than rather than Pat McCrory, who believably is not as conservative as as a lot of people would like. It's. It's that's that's the challenge. Is can that work? Sure, but again, this is a personal vendetta being led by David McIntosh. We'll see. Um, I think it's gonna be an interesting one to watch, regardless, because it's gonna be very bloody. This is why we bring you on big in-depth information analysis. You're great. We'll link to the piece, elections-daily.com. I imagine you'll be updating this probably quarterly or so, and then more often as we get closer. Let folks know where they can follow you, Elections Daily, what you got going on and how to put y'all in their information rotation going forward till we get you back, my friend. Yeah, uh, thank Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at D.E. Cunningham, too. I mostly just post uh, stuff for Elections Daily along with some other pop culture stuff I've written for Ordinary Times, which... Uh, uh, Andrew contributes to. Um, I've written some stuff about pop culture and and, and whatnot there. Um, we you can find us at tw on Twitter at elections underscore daily elections dash daily dot com. We have a YouTube channel. Watch a podcast there. Uh, if you want to get our articles in your inbox, you can go to our website and subscribe. Uh, it's at the top right corner. Whenever we post an article, you get notified. We do update. We do post a lot of articles, and we're going to be posting them more often as we're starting to get back into the swing of things after Christmas, after this little lull in the news cycle. Um, but yeah, really just liking and subscribing. That's how you can find our content. Uh, we're going to be moving our YouTube channel in all likelihood soon. Uh, we are under Decision Desk HQ. Uh, so we're maybe maybe moving our YouTube channel a little bit. So do keep an eye out for that. We will announce that there if we do that. But yeah, that's where you can find us. Yeah, you do great work, my friend. We're going to have you and your compatriots on frequently in this cycle. We rely on you. And I've been with you since you first started doing this stuff. I greatly appreciate you. You do good work, sir. Thank you very much. Continued yep. success. We'll do it again soon. Yeah, thank you. Happy to be on. Yes, sir. Thank you.
Uh, welcome back to Her Tale. We're going to have some fun with this one. Talking a little culture and, more importantly, shopping. Uh, she does comms for John Locke, but she's been a friend of ours for a long time. Way before I even had Her Tale, we were doing stuff with her. Brooke Medina, great to see you again, my friend. Well, I'm happy to be here. Thank you, Andrew. I am always ready to talk about shopping and retail. I like that maybe even more than policy. So let's go. One pays the bills and the other one is why you have bills to pay. I see how that works. Makes a nice, tight little circle. Um, I wanted to talk to you about this Maria Kondo thing. I don't want to make fun of her particularly. Like, look, she made her brand. She's got a lot more money than we're ever going to see. She became a phenomenon, but this Guardian story came out. We'll link to it where she basically like, yeah, I gave up on keeping things uncluttered because now I've got children. Um, we have a mess of kids between the two of us with our respective families. So we somewhat have some expertise in this thing. Here's the way I want to tackle this, though. Look, I'm an HGTV guy. I like watching HGTV. I love watching, you know, House Hunters and the cleaning stuff and all that. I like Food Network. There is definitely a thing in our culture where we're just selling perfect to people on TV. I don't find it to be particularly healthy. And I'm not just picking on Marie Kondo here, although that's the one we're dealing with. There's a lot of this going on. I don't think it's particularly healthy, is it? No, it's not healthy nor helpful. I think that I get that people want aspirational sort of encouragement when they're watching like an HGTV fixer upper or talking about ordering your lives. I think that's good um, when it's properly understood in the context of reality. Um, and then there's the other end of that spectrum where people like watching, you know, a bunch of schmuck on TV with people in their reality, like lives that are crazy. So that's the other end of the spectrum. And I think that's also unhealthy um, when we're just kind of like schadenfreude all the time about other people's messed up lives. But um, with the whole like Marie Kondo tidying up, keeping everything pristine, uh, it's just not attainable once you get to a certain phase or season in life. And so it was a little freeing. I, I would say it's, it was not Schadenfreude that I had for Kondo. It was like tidy Freud. I was very happy that she had kind of joined the rest of us parents of multiple children and uh, was ready to admit defeat on the clutter wars. Yeah. And here's the thing that we get into this. It, my general rule on reality TV shows are I have very little sympathy for anybody because they all sign these things called releases that people don't talk about. But you get, there's a reason cops, you had those blurred pictures back the original. T like they didn't sign a release. So their picture gets blurred. Right. Everybody signed a release. You can see their face. So they all signed up for it. They knew what they were getting into. There is a spectrum on this stuff, even though reality TV isn't my favorite thing in the world. There's aspirational, like you said, so. There's stuff that I think gets really deep into exploitive that I don't like. There's some of these weight loss shows that I think are just very exploitive. You have things like, you know, the hoarder shows, things like that. I don't think she was a bad show. I do think when you have something like that, you know, I'm just being honest. This is just my opinion. It does rub me the wrong way a little bit of like, oh, everything in your life will be joyful if it's perfect. And I know her fans are going to fill up my inbox. I get it. I know it was finding joy and then find the tightness. I get it. But. I just, you know, we have real lives. My house isn't perfectly clean, but it's cluttered because I got a bunch of people living up in here. Like, I just worry that we need to do a little bit better drawing of lines of aspirational, like you said, and avoid some of the more exploitative things. And not only the exploitative things, just things that are going to be out of reach, like having the perfect meals, like having the perfect house, like having the perfect real estate. I think perfect is the enemy of good here in a very, very real way. Oh, yeah. And I would say just scrolling Instagram a little bit, you see this, this 
preoccupation in such an unhealthy way with things being perfect, with ourselves being perfect. Look, I'm an Enneagram type three. So some people will roll their eyes and other people's ears will perk up over here. Um, I am one of those people that is probably described as a perfectionist. And so I love to be able to achieve things and have an orderly life. But there comes a point in time when you shouldn't keep seeking balance. You need to seek order. And I would say a lot of what we see in the mainstream when people are like doing self-help stuff is, well, you need a balance and you need to find like equal parts in your life for X, Y, and Z. And I would say it's actually more about ordering priorities. And so for Marie Kondo, she was helping some people figure out, okay, in the grand scheme of things, why am I acquiring all of this stuff? Why, it, like, is it actually bringing me joy in my life? So I think that's a valid question to ask is like the stuff that I am pursuing and seeking, does it actually make sense for my life? But then there comes a point in time where you just have to ask yourself, is this actually like my pursuit of the perfect or my pursuit of order? Is that actually taking first place over me just actually living my life and loving my family, taking care of my kids? And I think Marie found that answer was, yeah. And that's why it's taken a back seat now. And so she's spending time with her kids. That's her focus now. If stuff gets tidied, it gets tidy. And if it's not, then, you know, no biggie. It's not a reflection of our worth or our, our, our um, ability to be good parents. So that's freeing and that's encouraging to hear. Yeah. Brooke Medina joining us. I think you just hit on what's changed on some of this stuff. It's not just reality TV. It's the social media stuff. Everybody is projecting to some level. We all do it. Um, so I'll put my hand. But like this is when we do the Twitter Supper Club thing. You know, that's why I put my McDonald's cheeseburger, my little one dollar chicken sandwich that I like so much from McDonald's. I'll put that on there, too. Not just, you know, the perfectly cooked laid out steak. I was like, look, we keep it real. I don't cook high end, you know, seven days a week. Sometimes you just grab little Caesars and go, you know, the five buck and go with it. The the social media aspect of it, this this applies to our politics, it applies to our religion, it applies to our kids' sport. Look, how much of social media is just branding up and building up and bragging about our kids in some ways that sometimes get unhealthy as well. I think the social media aspect paired with the reality TV, paired with people being able to put themselves out there, I think that's the difference. I think you just got to start deciding, look what is it that really bring, you know, to use her line, what brings me joy here? Just projecting something out that's not really real doesn't bring me joy. I try to put out, you know, I don't put all my business in the street, but I'm honest about struggling with things sometimes. I think you need that balance, even in your own social media to an extent, because it keeps you grounded and you don't just end up playing a character on your social media for everybody else's benefits. Yeah, that is something I think so many in our generation and younger generations struggle with is, how much of this is actually necessary for me to share? Um, what is healthy? Where do I draw the line even when it comes to authenticity? So that's something we hear. It's a buzzword nowadays is the importance of being authentic, which I think is helpful. Um, but also there are limits to that because I would say even further upstream when it comes to like what we share online should also be the question of what do I owe this person? What do I owe the public versus what privacy I owe myself. And people can get addicted, I mean, to these likes, to this engagement and these comments. And I would say that's one of the disturbing elements of the social media marketplace nowadays is 
people feel like they are their own brand, that they are marketing themselves. That's how, I mean, that's how we talk about it now. It's like, I'm building my own personal brand. What does that even mean? You're a human being, just be yourself and also have some sort of discretion. You don't have to put it all out there, but when you do put it out there, don't create some illusion. That's why I appreciate your, your McDonald's posts and your, sometimes I think you've done Fruit Loops for Twitter Supper Club, which I love because, you know, it's just, not everything is going to be that five course meal each night. Um, not every day is going to be good for us. You know, sometimes we'll go through health struggles or family struggles and it's okay to be honest about that because no one is like, no one really, really wants to see your highlight reel all the time. People want you to actually be a, an, a real person because they know that's what you are at the end of the day anyways. But I do think that there is something important about just being discerning what we share online, whether it's the highlight reel or whether it's being, you know, very transparent. Um, it's okay to have some privacy. And actually, I think it's good to have a little bit of mystery too. So that's my thought on the social media front. Yeah, you know, I, I take something from pro wrestling because they're the experts on faking it and making it look real. <laughs> there, there's an old saying in pro wrestling, it's like the, the characters and the gimmicks and the guys that really succeeded, they're playing themselves. They just crank it up to 11, right? So I like to say, you know, social media, that's pretty what you see is pretty much what you get for the look when I'm on a Fox News hit or something like that. No, that's not how I talk when I sit on the couch, but it, it's still me. It's just me turned up to eight or nine. Whereas if I'm watching Downton Abbey on the couch, I'm at three or four. Right. But it's still me. It's just me at a little bit more volume. That's kind of the standard I try to use with my social media. And look, I got rules because I, I'm out there with my real name on stuff. That's also something I do for my own accountability is like, hey, this has got my name on it. I want to make sure, it, you know, I'm behaving. You know, I don't I don't do Facebook. I don't do stuff with my family. I don't have stuff with my kids out there except in the abstract of, hey, my kid did this or whatever, whatever. That's how I keep my privacy. That's my line. Everybody's line is going to be different. Mm -hmm. But I think that's just the rule I use, like with the supper club or whatever, you know. If you balance it and you give people the good and the bad, they're going to start thinking you're more authentic anyway, just because it's like, oh, it's just not good. If you're just good all the time or just bad all the time, you're just going to turn people off anyway. And people aren't going to want to hear what you have to say about everything else. Yeah. They, well, they won't take you seriously. It will just be you're, you either become this ideal where people are like, you know, I just want to be like you kind of thing because they haven't seen like the ugly side of you yet. Or you become this person where it's just like, oh, they are very much oversharing. They got problems. I feel good about myself now. Um, and I do think it's just, it's one of those areas of our life where I think we have become so just, so just immersed in the social media world and sharing as a regular part of our like daily liturgy that uh, it takes some discipline to actually reflect and think, is this something I should be sharing with the public? Uh, what do I owe my family to your point about keeping your kids like information private? They people know you're a parent, but they don't have a lot of detail about your children. Um, that's certainly how I've approached it as well. I keep my family information private out of respect for them, especially given the nature, you know, when you're commenting on political stuff, you have your share of trolls. And so why would I make my family's information more available for them? Um, but I think, you know, at the end of the day, it's, whether it's the Marie Kondo tidying up and that desire to have everything organized in one's life or to project organization, I think it really comes down to just being comfortable with ourselves and understanding really what matters. 
And for Marie, it's she's realizing it's her kids. They're their top priority. And so she doesn't have to maintain this sort of tranquil setting all the time in her house and declutter all the time. And that is so freeing. I've been a mom for many years now. I have four children. And the less I tried to emulate other people and I just mothered or worked or was a friend from my own strengths rather rather than trying to tap into someone else's idea of perfection, the more free I was to actually just be a good friend, be a good mom. Yeah, the the Maria Kondo, the TV show, not her personally, that creeped me out. I'll just be honest. That that was too positive and too organized. And like I just yeah, it made me cringy. I felt better too when she's like, no, nah, I'm I'm raising kids now. I just want my kids to be good. I actually felt better about that. All right. <laughs> Brooke Modena joining us. Let's talk about one of those things that make you very happy. See, this is part of being a friend. You got to know what your friends really like. I have something that's going to thrill your soul. So out in LA, we will link to this piece, KTLA. They are building a mixed-use complex. This is a very special mixed-use complex, though, because I'm making sure you're sitting down for this. They're going to put 800 apartment buildings over top of a Costco. Now, I don't want to dox you, so I won't tell them exactly. They can read the piece of where you will be living in a few years. I have no doubt. But mixed-use apartment buildings over a Costco, I got to think you're a big in on this one. Oh, my gosh. Like, I actually had seen that head headline before, like, a couple of days ago. And I just thought, why hadn't I thought of that? That is, that is like, heaven on earth. That is, you know, when we talk about city planning and the importance of, urban living done right like that's it done right i wouldn't even leave my complex i would go straight there would, there would be an elevator from my apartment to the costco bakery section where i get my free cookie and i get all my rosemary baked bread my caesar salad my rotisserie chicken and i take the elevator back up i would do that every day they would know me so well now i won't even lie here one of my favorite restaurants i go to in northridge and i'm not going to dox them either because i like to eat out up in raleigh they've got the harris teeter with the condos over top of it and you can you can go to harris teeter in an elevator from your condo straight down to the hair i could never afford to live there but i'm like yeah one of my favorite sushi places right across the street and there's a harris teeter right there you know where i'm talking about i see the grin like uh, i i could do this this would be okay this would work i would never be able to afford it we're joking about it a little bit, but mixed use stuff like that, there is a quality of life involved in it. I know it's not for everybody. Look, I'm a, I'm still a mountain kid. I like my mountains, but when I'm in the city, you know, I like walkability. I like being able to do things all at once. This kind of urban planning makes a lot of sense. It's interesting at the Costco because that's one of your favorite things. It is all the sense in the world to talk about livability, but in a practical way like this, not just drawing straight lines on a map and saying, hey, we're going to put high-speed rail here across this mountain through the Okie Pernokie Swamp, which you'll never be able to do. This makes sense. I actually like this kind of pot. And you can talk about policy and politics in this way because it's a practical thing. People look at it and go, oh, wouldn't that be nice? Yeah, I mean, that they actually are continuing or increasing their zoning in various cities in the U.S., to include like mixed use zoning like this so that it's residential, it's uh, it's commercial. 
I think that's excellent because that seems to be definitely where the market is going, especially with family sizes getting smaller. Um, although, yeah, it will be interesting to find out, like, what is the average apartment size there? Because we all know Costco comes in big, big boxes, like all of their items do. And so I hope those apartments have really large pantries or an excellent recycling service so you can get rid of those boxes. But I think that that's part of the larger conversation around what does the market actually want in cities right now? Do we want just like just urban sprawl all the time where everything's single family zoning and the neighborhoods have, um, you know, half acre lots or do more and more people, especially those because they're delaying families or having families and being married. So there's a lot of single uh, uh, single folks that are just looking to have a one bedroom apartment what makes sense for their needs? And I would say mixed use development like that is excellent. And I mean, if they have a three or four bedroom available, I'm definitely looking at moving the Medina family in. I mean, we're joking about it and you're a huge fan of Costco, but there, there's some economics to this too. Um, news headline just came out. This is out of the Dallas Morning News, but it's other places. It's an AP story. I'll link to it. Costco and HEB have knocked off Amazon as the top U.S. grocer. So even in this digital fist pumping, even in this digital world, what is it about? And you have a large family, so that's part of it, but that's not all of it. For people that aren't familiar, for people that aren't familiar with bulk places like you know Sam's Club, we don't have a Costco where I go. We go to Sam's, Sam's Club, Costco, those kind of stores. What the appeal is and what it does practically to a family, especially a larger family, when you're buying in a place like that, and why they're so popular. Yeah, well, I mean, part of it is that. Sometimes we are inclined to think that the more options we have, the happier we'll be. But Costco really only offers about one-tenth in terms of options that a regular grocery store would offer. And so part of it is the reduction in what is available and the bulk that it's available in is something that, in the spirit of Marie Kondo, it is tidying our, you know, our options and our choices and making it a little bit more streamlined so that we're not constantly standing in front of a, a number of different types of chocolate chips. There's only the Kirkland chocolate chips and maybe the Nestle kind. And I think that has its own sort of attraction and appeal. Uh, so that's part of it. But also another part is the prices are just a lot better oftentimes. And so especially during high inflation times like now, and we're paying, you know, $50 an egg, uh, going to Costco and buying a couple dozen at once is actually really, really helpful. Um, I do have one recommendation for Costco in case like a Costco executive ends up li listening to this later. Can I share that? Sure. Of course you can. <laughs> yeah. So I have an idea of let's create the Costco's like the next round of them a lot more visually appealing. I want it to feel like I am in a terrarium. And so, you know, oftentimes the warehouse clubs have like the open, I mean, they're really, really high ceilings. Sometimes there are like skylights there. I want it all to be a big skylight. I want greenery everywhere, little sitting areas, maybe a cafe. So in addition to the food court, you can get your big hot dog, but then maybe you get like a cappuccino or something. So I would even spend even more money than I already do if it was visually appealing, because that is the downside to Costco. It is not necessarily eye candy. But I mean, it makes my heart very happy, but it should be a little prettier, I think. Yeah, but you already know the answer to that is they're keeping costs down. And the first thing to keep costs down is get rid of the aesthetics. Like that's the entire point. But I, I take your point. All right. You just mentioned it. So let's end on something fun here. 
Costco's got a little bit of a problem here. Their famous $1.50 hot dog and soda combo, right? Legendary. Everybody knows about it. Sam's Club has undercut it by 12 cents. This is causing consternation and gnashing of teeth and renting of garments and all kinds of naughty words. I'm assuming your team Costco because you just basically did a per- commercial for them that we did not get sponsorship money for, <laughs> but we're available. DMs open Costco. Uh, $1.50 hot dog combination. I assume you're team Costco, but why is this so legendarily known and loved? And it's been this way since pretty much the eighties. Yeah, it's been this way since the eighties. And that's, I mean, there is that element of nostalgia that is just, if you've been a Costco shopper for a couple of decades now, uh, you obviously, that's what you expect to see as well as a four ninety nine rotisserie chicken. Um, but it's also like, I don't know. It feels like Costco is sticking it to the feds this way. And they're like, you know what? Everything else in this world can go up. But our hot dogs, gosh darn it, are going to stay $1.50 for the hot dog soda combo. And I kind of like that. I I respect that game. Um, They can raise their prices on other things and people will learn to to adapt and they understand. But I don't know if Costco ever raised their price on that. I don't know if they could be forgiven. Ooh, harsh words from Brooke Medina. All right, this was fun. We were talking culture and stuff today, but you do have a day job over at John Locke. Let folks know what you got going on. Uh, your type of part of the country, North Carolina, going to be kind of mercifully spared too much derision in 2024, but you'll still be busy covering politics like you normally do. A lot of policy stuff going on. Let folks know where you're at, what you got going on, how they can follow you and the John Locke folks. We've had some of the other ones on, on the program as well. Till we get you back on Hertel again, my friend. Yeah, so we have a full suite of policy issues that we uh, that we are working on at the state level. So we like to think of ourselves as lobbyists for the state taxpayer. And so we have a huge agenda. We're working on affordable housing. Maybe we'll see some Costco multi-purpose uh, apartment unit complexes go up over here in Raleigh. Um, but you can keep up with all of our research at johnlock.org. You can also go to carolinajournal.com if you want to follow North Carolina political news or any or, or some really great opinion from writers based here in North Carolina. Yeah, I can't wait for your uh, white paper on why Costco needs to do a mixed-use retail residential space in your neck of the woods. We'll be watching for that. Brooke Medina, it's always fun, my friend. This was good. It's nice to talk a little culture with you. Talk to you soon. Thank you, Andrew. Yes, ma'am. Ah, welcome back to Herd Tell. Okay, hadn't seen him in a minute. Glad to have him back. Jack Salmon back on the program with us. He comes from George Mason. He's got exciting new opportunities on the horizon, though. We'll ask him about that in just a minute. We're going to talk about the latest itineration of a very, very old problem, my friend. Jack, how are you? Great to have you back. I'm very well. Thank you, Andrew. It's great to be back here. Great to have you back. All right, here's the deal. I We were talking about this a minute before we started recording, though, but I would love to explain to 90s and 2000s political me the fact that we cannot even discuss Social Security now because it used to be the GOP. This is all they ever talked about. They would never be quiet about it. George W. Bush actually tried to do some legislative stuff on this. 
Why is the environment surrounding Social Security politically changed? We know financially this is one of those, you know, iceberg things. It's just coming, 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 coming. But politically, this discourse has really changed the last 10, 15 years, hasn't it? It certainly has. I, I often see similarities between Social Security in the U.S. and the National Health Service back in my home country of the U.K. It's really become the sort of crown jewels of American politics. Nobody dare touch it. Nobody dare talk about it. Any mention of even the smallest tweaks are shouted down as, as benefit cuts, even if that isn't the case. Yeah, here's the thing. The problem with this is Social Security was the government promising people money and taking people's money in the promise that they're going to get it back at some time. So just on a visceral, basic level, we can talk about all the policy, we can talk about all the math and whatever. That's what people hear. Hey, the government promised me this. They, I see it go out of my check. I want it back. I don't, I don't know that you're going to ever have a policy discussion that's going to break through that understanding for most people. Is that a fair way to put the problem? That, that is a fairly accurate uh, way to look at it. There's, there's actually a, 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 a quite a broad misconception that people have about Social Security. They tend to think that as they pay in, the money they're paying in goes into a special fund reserved just for them. And when they retire, they pull from that very fund. In actual fact, the, the payees, the people who are paying the payroll taxes today, they're actually financing the retired people today. So it's, it's essentially going out as, as quick as it's going in. So there isn't actually a fund that's reserved for you once you reach retirement. If you're a younger person like myself, you're probably not going to see the types of generous benefits that current beneficiaries are receiving because the pool of funds is getting smaller and smaller. And as we'll talk about in a little bit, it's, it's eventually going to reach depletion. Yeah. And Jack Salmon joining us. Look, math is math. Math isn't changing. And we can talk about, you know, when's it going to go insolvent, cuts, cuts to projected growth, cuts to projected decline. People's eyes just kind of roll in the back of their head when they start getting into the deep numbers here. Give me one or two of the top line numbers that when they pop up in a headline, people should be paying attention to. Is it the percentage we're spending on it? Is it the rates of growth? Is it what's the number that folks should kind of cut through the noise? And even if they don't understand the math, when they just hear that number, or that term go, oh, that's the one I need to pay attention to here. As many numbers I could talk about, and being an economist, I'd like to talk about a lot of them. But if I have to talk about one, it would be a percentage, and it would be a 23%. 23% is the the estimated cut in Social Security benefits that is automatically built into the system that the Social Security Tr Board of Trustees estimates will happen in 2034 if we do nothing. And the CBO recently released a report, and they estimate 2033. So we've got about a decade when that 23% benefit cut comes in if we do nothing. So that's a good number to keep in mind. Yeah, Jack Salmon joining us. Here's the larger problem with all this. And again, the numbers depend because the numbers on projections and cost of living. So the numbers move around a little bit. Somewhere right around that 20, 21%, 22%, that's the percentage of the U.S. budget that's going to Social Security. That is an enormous chunk of money. Bigger picture, though, if you put Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid and Obamacare, ACA, and all the other health stuff all together, now you're getting almost to 50% of the federal budget in, in entitlements. So there's no way that you're ever going to do anything like spending cuts, entitlement cuts, anything without touching half of the U.S. budget. Politically, nobody's going to touch half of the U.S. budget. This is just the rock and the hard place reality of where we're at on this, right? Correct. And that was that was 
part of my uh, reasoning for, for writing that piece that I wrote, because I know there's a there's a lot of disagreement on these issues. There are proposals from people on the left who want to raise payroll taxes, especially payroll taxes on the rich as they see it. And then any sort of even minor suggestion of reduction in benefits or raising the retirement age is always met with strict opposition. So the purpose of my piece was to try and offer some sort of middle of the road options for policymakers to find consensus on. So I talked about things like small adjustments in the in the retirement age. So when the Social Security program was first founded in the 1930s, they determined that 65 was an appropriate age because it was around life expectancy at the time. And so it was a program meant for those who had stopped working and were living in poverty. There was a very small number of people that fell into that category. Now, since then, the average life expectancy has risen about 15 years, but the retirement the, the retirement age to claim four benefits has only risen by three. So there's a huge there's a huge gap there now, and um, that's that's obviously a, a large part of the problem. So that's one of that's one of the solutions is to is to make small tweaks to the retirement age. Another one would be to change the cost of living adjustment. So people who are receiving Social Security benefits this year they're going to get an 8.7% increase in the benefits compared to last year. And that, that's an astronomical increase in benefit payments. It's, it's, it's truly unsustainable. So changing the way that we measure the, um, the cost of living adjustment, rather than using the CPI, if we instead use what's called the chain CPI, it's a slight, a very, very slightly um, lower than the, than, the, than the headline CPI. So it would, it would be tiny, minuscule changes in benefits maybe beneficiaries would get about $4 a month less than they would otherwise get. But it makes a big difference to the overall budget when you consider there are 65 million beneficiaries on this program. Yeah. And another thing you touched on in your piece, we're going to link to a Jack Sam's piece in Real Clear Policy. We'll link to it. Make sure you read through the whole piece yourself. It's also got a couple of links in there that are really important to dig into, like eligibility requirements, things like this. I've already done it a couple of times just in this short amount of time we've been covering it. We use Social Security as a really big umbrella term for a whole lot of stuff when you get into the details. Like you said, you're an economist. Social Security means many different things. And I just did it, so I'm guilty of this too. Social Security can mean just regular retirement for folks. That's how a lot of people see it. Oh, that's going to be a big chunk of my retirement. Um, But there's also Social Security disability. There's old age and benefits survivors. There's a lot of other things under the umbrella Walk through the terminology for just a second, though, that maybe part of this problem is we've got a lot of stuff built in under, quote unquote, Social Security when we're talking about it like this. When you go to put it to pen and paper and policy in the black and white of the law, it's way more complicated than just that. Yeah, that's quite right. And uh, I just briefly build off something you mentioned that is, you know, when you're thinking about Social Security, you're really thinking about your retirement funds. So this includes your private retirement savings, you have a 401k or you have an IRA, those should be your priorities. Whether or not you're considering changes in in social security in the future, you should really be prioritizing saving as much as you can in your private accounts, in your your work-based retirement accounts, because those are the funds that you can actually rely on um, and there won't be benefit cuts to those. Uh, They also tend to grow much faster because they're they're more diversified, which is another issue with the Social Security Trust Fund. It's it's not diversified. It grows at two or three percent per year with its interest rates. But, yeah, you're quite right that it's it's, it's more than just uh, retirement benefits. A large chunk of the budget is also um, what we call Social Security Disability Insurance. And so that's for uh, workers who have been deemed ineligible to work because of a disability. And there's about 12 million workers who are currently claiming that that benefit. So that also pulls from the Social Security uh, Trust Funds as well. 
So it's it, it, it's really a diverse range of different programs rolled into one very large program that's, that, as we say, it's going insolvent. Jack Salmon joining us. You mentioned the SSDI portion of this. This is up to almost 12 million Americans that get SSDI, but you actually brought up part of what's the real problem with it. Yes, there's eligible. We could talk about eligibility and things like that. One of the built-in problems with SSDI is it's all or nothing disability. There's no range to it. You get everything or you get nothing. And if you get everything, you can't work at all. This is separate from other federal systems like VA disabilities for the veterans, where it's based off of what you physically are, your physical incapacitations based off what you could previously do. You get it, but you can still work. You get a percentage. Some of this is just stuff in the policy of writing like all or nothing language like SSDI. There seems like there's a lot of regulatory and legislative room to do some real reform in here without having to get into that sticky thing of, oh, we're taking benefits from people. We could do some small stuff in here like maybe having a step program to SSDI so more people are eligible for it, but they're eligible for a percentage that reflects what they need. Just little ideas like that that we could do instead of this whole reform Social Security that's never going to get any political traction. Right. And and the, the eligibility aspect is, is is really quite problematic. A lot of those eligibility requirements came in in the 1980s. And one of the, just, just to give one example, one of the um, regulations is called the medical vocational grid. And it it was really changing the way in which physicians um, define disabilities and it made it much more vague. So there was a huge explosion in uh, disabilities such as musculoskeletal disease and mental mental disorders because those are quite hard to define, they're quite hard to diagnose. And so that, those now make up the vast majority of all claims on those programs. And we've, we've seen something like a five-fold increase just in the last couple of decades. Um, one of the lessons that that, that can be drawn from this is is to look to international examples. So I often look to the UK because that's where I'm from and I'm quite familiar with, with the public policy space there. And after 2010, there were some uh, reforms made to the disability insurance program in the UK. One of the key distinctions that they made was, was making a very clear distinction between what a disability, w- whether a worker was disabled or whether a worker was incapacitated. So you can be disabled and you can carry out certain certain roles, certain kinds of jobs. And so making that distinction was very important in helping people get back to work. But it also meant that those disabled workers who were able and willing to work were able to make more money and they weren't facing those sorts of benefit cliffs that, that we often see here in the U.S. that disincentivize workers from even looking for work. Yeah. And here's another example since you just brought it up. Something I'm familiar with, one of the reasons I do what I do now, where I got to where I couldn't work a real job. Technology has changed now where people can work from home and they can't, even folks with physical or mental or whatever disabilities, the technology hasn't been written into these laws to catch up. So that's another policy area where you could probably do a whole lot of good with a little bit of tweaking without getting into the whole mess of the whole thing, you would think, if you had a little bit of willpower and some legislators that wanted to do it. That's certainly something that should be taken into consideration when you really think about it most of this legislation was drafted before the invention of the internet. So when you consider those uh, those the, those types of facts, it, it, it really sort of brings it home to the fact that, you know, these aren't 
most workers today aren't going down mines. They aren't lumberjacks. The vast majority of them are working office jobs or service sector jobs where they're really not doing hard manual labor. And so we should logically be seeing a huge decrease in disability claims, given this trajectory and the change of the workplace and the change of the workplace environments. But we've actually seen quite the opposite. So there's something definitely to look into there. Yeah, Jack Salmon joining us. You touched on it earlier, but I don't want to gloss over because I think this is a really important piece. A lot of people have started to pay attention to things like COLA, cost of living adjustments on all kinds of benefits, on paycheck benefits, because inflation is a big story right now. And so everybody, people that have any kind of benefits or pay that's tied to COLA, they got a big jump. They're like, oh, I got a big jump. It's like, well, no, that's actually bad because that means the inflation rate went high. Talk about how much something like COLA, and I know you were talking about tweaking it to change and that sort of thing. People that are just now paying attention to it, this is something they should always be paying attention to. It's almost like your tax returns, like, oh, I got a big tax return. It's like, well, yeah, but a big picture, that may not be the best thing for you. Just walk people through the COLA and how these things go together, especially when you start talking about something like a Social Security benefit. Sure. So in the context of Social Security benefits, um, the the purpose behind the COLA is to ensure that those receiving their benefits keep up uh, a bare minimum with the cost of living. So as in, as inflation, if, if inflation exceeds to high levels, the cost of living adjustment will reflect that that, that built-in inflation, and so it will adjust benefits upwards. Um, one of the issues with the COLA is, particularly with Social Security, is that if we experience deflation, which which we rarely do, but in in, in some rare circumstances, the COLA remains unchanged. So you don't actually you never actually see decreases in benefits. Uh, worst case scenario, you see a you see a zero percent change in your, your benefits year to year. But you're quite right that it's it's an important aspect when talking about the inflation debate because it tends to go both ways. And um, I I was reviewing the the wage data that came in this morning with the with the PCE release. And for the first time in a very long time, government wages are now outstripping private sector wages. And one of the reasons for this is most government jobs tend to have colas that, that, that are tied to, to rates of inflation, whereas the private sector tends to give raises based on value creation. And so there's that very clear distinction there that we're now seeing a divergence between the private sector and the public sector. Yeah, Jack Salmon, one last quick question on this and we'll move along. But what is the future of this? Because obviously there's not a political will to touch a lot of this stuff. Is there any hope that we're going to get any kind of traction on any of this other than when it just becomes an emergency and then we have to do something about it? You know, it's this is one of those issues where I, I, I often have little hope for change when it comes to policymakers actually doing anything. But I have slightly more hope this year, given the particular circumstances we find ourselves in. Uh, we we have a divided government, so that often pushes more bipartisan uh, consensus on these sorts sorts of issues. At least we would hope. We have a debt ceiling debate. I believe we've we've effectively reached the debt ceiling and we're now seeing extraordinary measures implemented by the Treasury. And so that's a debate that's going to be going on for the next six months or so. And so that also adds pressure for policymakers to make reforms. At the same time, I'm seeing more calls than ever from both sides uh, to protect Social Security and to prioritise Social Security if there were to be any spending cuts in, it implemented. So I try, I try to remain optimistic that now is a better time than than we've seen perhaps since since the last big debates on on austerity back in 2011 but at the same time um it's it's the chances of actually seeing real change are, are probably quite slim 
Yeah, Jack Salmon. Always appreciate your insight, my friend. He's an economist, one of these conveyor belt of economists coming out of George Mason. Uh, let folks know how they can keep up with you and follow you until we get you back on the program again, where they can find you, what work you're doing, and until we see you again, my friend. Yeah, the best place to find me and, and, my, and my work, my articles are posted there as well as my interviews, is my Young Voices bio page. So just search my name, Jack Salmon, on the Young Voices bio page. And then also my Twitter handle is on the same page if you're interested in following me on Twitter. Yep, we'll follow and have all those links on the show notes, including social media. And this piece, please read the whole thing, Real Clear Policy. Jack Salmon, always enjoy the chat, buddy. We'll do it again soon. Thank you, Andrew. Always glad to be here. Thank you, sir. Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church and Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you. Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on the Hurt Tell Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics, from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutans. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find The Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcast or at www.thesweatypenguin.com. Ah, welcome back to Her Tell. Okay, excited about this one. Been wanting to talk to her for a while. We keep crossing paths on lines and then different things. Never actually got to talk to each other. That's the beauty of the medium, Ashley Barker's with us. She's from public policy. Does that for the Committee for Justice, a bunch of other things, federal society. She also does antitrust, but we're going to talk some lawyering today, Supreme Court stuff. Ashley, how are you? Great to finally have you on the program, ma'am. Great. Thank you for having me. Uh, thrilled to have you. Okay, we have the inevitable headline that we've kind of been waiting on. It was a matter of when. The leaker of the Dobbs decision, the Supreme Court came out with their statement 
dare I say it was a very lawyery statement. Uh, the bullet point on it was, and I'm quoting here, uh, they could not find to the preponderance of evidence who leaked it. That caught my attention. I don't think this is a case where they don't know who it is. I think this is a case where they either can't prove it or don't want to reveal it. How did that statement come across to you as somebody that really follows this really closely? Sure. Thanks. So I, I think you're you're correct, Jay. First of all, it is very long overdue. It's been over, I think, nine months now since it's May 4th or 5th when it was when the draft opinion was originally leaked. And, and you make a good point too about the preponderance of the evidence. So of course that you know you, you mentioned it as sounding lawyerly, and it's not as if such a statement um needed to have a preponderance of the evidence standard versus you know a reasonable doubt sort of standard. Um and, and I think you're correct too, and, and that was my reading of it um at, at on first impression is that they do have, you know, a suspect or a small number of people that they suspected it, but they lack the actual evidence linking it specifically to that person, whether that be, you know, a digital footprint or, or fingerprint or whatever that sort of evidence is. Um, they don't have enough to definitively say we have a piece of evidence that implicates this person. Um, but, you know, the fact that they said a preponderance of evidence, it does mean that they, um, you know, weren't looking for, it would be different if it were like, well, we couldn't prove beyond a reasonable doubt. We're not 100% certain. There could be some doubt. Um, no, it, it's just that they were missing a key um, piece of evidence, and that could be because of, you know, the IT systems at the court, um, probably not surprising that they're stuck, you know, back a few centuries ago in terms of their systems and protocols and other things. So it seems that they were inclusive, inconclusive in their findings, which was really disappointing from my perspective. Ashley Baker joining us. It's funny when you actually read through the report here, ju not just what the marshal said, um, but they also brought in an outside uh, report as well. <laughs> It's funny here, uh, the Chertoff group, of course, Michael Chertoff, familiar name in, in Homeland mm -hmm. Security circles. It's funny here, you mentioned the technology and the digital footprint. It almost seems like what they couldn't handle here is though, is in their interviews, and they didn't get interview everybody here. That's important to note here. They talk about things like what we would used to call pillow talk, like, well, they talked to their spouse. Did they mention it? A couple people admitted they mentioned it in that way. It's not just technology. This is just kind of a human nature thing you're fighting here, isn't it? Which is somewhat something the law's been dealing with since we first started having law, right? Uh, yes, I, I agree. It's well, one hand, yes, it is something that we've, we've been dealing with, um, human nature, and it seems that it was probably a printed copy that was shared one way or the other. But also, I don't think we've dealt with this level of activism that we have today. Um, in other cases as well, it's just that, you know, the, the types of students who are coming out of places like Yale today are the types who would see it as, you know, this is being something that's permissible, something that they should do. And that just was completely out of the question beforehand, I think. Yeah, Ashley Baker joining us. Let's back up then because it's important to keep the perspective here. We haven't had a leak like this in modern times with modern technology. There's some stuff back in the early days of the court. Look, the Supreme Court has some dirty laundry like every other government organization. If you go back, especially in the early days, there's some real questionable characters uh, <laughs> involved. But this is new in the modern time. I think it shocked people. Walk through people through it just real slowly, though. This is a court that's still trying to figure out the technological. A Look, we just got recordings of live court hearings because of COVID stuff. That's almost like the dam breaking in a lot of ways. The court is very slow to adapt to the public. That's the environment this all happened in. And that's why this came as such a shock when we had this breach of protocol. I think so. Uh, you're correct that the courts adapt slow to adapt to the public with, with COVID, but in some ways they've been good, such as oral argument for, format, for example, I think has actually become a little bit better as a 
um, result of the pandemic, and it's great to be able to listen to that in real time online. So that's one thing that they did well. The other thing, you know, it, it's not surprising that so the Supreme Court barely had a functioning website during part of the month of June until about five years ago. It was like every June, the Supreme Court website on Opinion Day would crash once or twice, um, and everyone would go find the opinions on SCOTUS blog. It's, um, it's, bad enough that you know what's essentially the pr arm of a boutique law firm became the go-to source for supreme court opinions for many years which is absurd if you think about it because you should be able to just go to the government website and find that document um in terms of you know the sharing of documents being able to take them home that process working differently work at home um aspect of it yes whether or not different protocols and those which I, I think the recommendations in the report are solid whether or not that would have actually stopped this from happening it's really hard to say i mean it could be you know someone could leave a printed copy in you know a cafeteria in the metro like they could leave it at home and their roommate or their um spouse or whatever could see it um so it's not completely foolproof um which is why i think it's also important that there are consequences for this sort of action yeah ashley baker Let's talk about that for just a second, though, because we just walked through it a little bit. The Supreme Court, when it's these court cases, I think and I would hope, look, I've, I've become real big since I've started doing editing and writing and stuff is get to the source documents. Right. Mm -hmm. This stuff is not as intimidating to read as I think people think it is. Dobbs may be the first time people really actually tried to look up and read a decision themselves. For just the average person that's not a lawyer, but they just want to keep up with, look, the, the Supreme Court is so entwined now, especially with, you know, kind of the breakdown in the legislative system. If there's a theme of the Roberts courts, it's Congress needs to fix this. We shouldn't fix this. There's a lot of back and forth here for the average person who keeps seeing the Supreme Court pop up. How should they go about reading these, getting the source documents? I know you mentioned the SCOTUS blog. It's a great website. I use it all the time myself. But you can just get the straight PDFs for this stuff. You can find the source doc. You don't have to take a talking head's word for it on either side because both want to spin this to their own ways. How do they go about actually getting this information? Because I think this is one of those things we could self-educate ourselves and get through a lot of this mess in a hurry. I think so. But I think a lot of people, too, even when the link is provided, want the you know short, quick, regurgitated version. And some people want the version of it that aligns with their beliefs. So there, there's always going to be an element of some people not reading you know, the source documents I mean, and working in other areas. And let's say of antitrust, for example, there are plenty of people who do not read um, the cases or not read the thing that they're responding to. But that said, I mean, for those who are inclined to do so, one thing that I would suggest is either SCOTUS blog. Um, it's a great suggestion. They always um, print a link to the document. Also, the Supreme Court website, like I said, which is now um, easier to access and easier to navigate um, on the page than it used to be. And also following reporters on Twitter who consistently own opinion days, particularly in June when all the opinions come out very quickly at once, who provide links to the document. Um, like find those reporters and um, and follow them. Yeah, Ashley Baker. Okay, talking about following stuff. Anytime we have a huge story like this leak, it puts my radar up on because like, well, wait a minute, the Supreme Court's working right now. They're going through things right now mm -hmm. and everybody's talking about this. What are we missing that the court's doing right now? Because we don't have the big ticket like a Dobbs going right now, but we got some really important cases working through the court right now. We also have some things that they're going to review. What's going on that's missing in these headlines and the rush of the coverage of the Dobbs leaker? 
Well, kind of going back to jobs specifically and, and the harm that the leak does is it is it's to that process. It's to the deliberative process after you know, this draft was actually it, the date sample was February 10th or so, I believe it was um, early to mid February and it was leaked in May. And during that that time is you know used to deliberate with the other with the other justices for other justices, right, dissenting opinions, concurring opinions, dissenting in parts, that sort of thing. So what's really being impeded is that process, which does require cooperation across chambers. And I think a lot of um, trust and ability for clerks to work with one another has been eroded. I don't think this necessarily means that justices won't trust their own clerks. I don't think that the trust that's eroded is like vertical, so to speak. I think it's between um, between the, the different chambers um, of, of the court. Um, and, and as of what's going on right now, I mean, it's most of the opinions come out in June. Um, oral arguments have been heard in quite a few cases. We have quite a few to go. And there's kind of this rush um, to get out opinions towards the um, end of the Supreme Court term, which usually ends at the very end of June. They'll extend it by a week or so. Um, and that's when most of the opinions of the court come out, especially the um, more complex opinions that take the justices a bit more time to um, get through and to write various concurring and dissenting opinions. Ashley Baker joining us. For folks that aren't familiar, though, let's just make sure we don't skip over this too far. That The Dobbs leak, it actually had first draft stamped on it. Like you could read the stamp on the copy that got out. Talk about that process a little bit. You're talking about cross chambers. The justices don't just write an opinion and submit it. And they, it's not like turning in a work at school, right? They write it, but then they pass it between themselves so they can refine their arguments. They can refine, you know, whoever's in dissent, who's ever in the majority. They work through who's going to be in what. There's a negotiation is probably not the right word, but for something that everybody can get their heads around, they refine these opinions down based off what each other's writing. That's why a draft leak was so damaging because they got to trust each other. Like, all right, here's how I'm going to disagree with you. Scalia was famous for this. He would actually send his over as early as possible. Like, here's what I'm saying, you know, write, write what you're going to descend off what I already wrote. There's a there's not just a camaraderie there, but there's an important part of the legal process there. And that's what gets damaged by this. Yes, absolutely. I mean, like and the duty of the court in writing these opinions is partially to explain to the public how exactly we we arrived here, um, what our rationale is. And if you notice the final version of the the Dobbs opinion um versus the one that was leaked, the only difference is really we're responding to the dissenting and concurring opinions. The opinion itself and the number of those who were um in agreement with it, all of that remained the same. It, it kind of I, I think it as soon as it leaked, my first thought was, well, this is probably locked in at this point. Um, and I don't think that was necessarily their motive, but I couldn't see the possibility of someone flipping because they would forever be known as that um, justice who flipped in Dobbs. Yeah, I thought the same thing. And then the other thing I thought was, and I don't want to do conspiracy theories here, but like it had to be one of the, and there's different levels of clerks, the clerks that would have access to a draft copy. That's a very small number of people and the justices. 
the two concerns is was it a clerk or was it a justice? It almost seems like it's incalculable that it would be a justice. But the way they've handled this, they mm -hmm. kind of left the door open for the conspiracy folks to think this might have been a justice. I don't want to speculate on it, but if it was a justice, that's that's really not good. I mean, I think there's virtually no chance it was one of the justices. Um, none from um, either side of this case would do this. I think they, there's too much respect for the institution amongst the justices. And also thinking about this too, just from a purely practical perspective, they're appointed to the court for life. They have to work with their colleagues as long as they're there. Um, it would, from a purely practical standpoint, I mean, obviously other than just being wrong, it would make no sense to do this nor would they be able to persuade their colleagues to go one way or the other by doing that. Um, there's just absolutely no good motive there. Yeah. Ashley Baker joining us. Okay. That's that story. What's coming up in the Supreme Court here? You just went through the timeline a little bit. Usually we get the big announcements, you know, May, June, July kind of time period. What's the stuff folks should be watching out for this spring that the court's going to be watching in the headlines as they follow along? Well, there are quite a few big cases that will be in the headlines. The court recently has not um, been shy. I mean, Dobbs is evidence of this. The fact that they've even granted it, they're, they're granting cases now that um, aren't as non-controversial, aren't as necessarily incrementalist as the court did in years past, which I think is a is a good thing um, to, to reevaluate some of these larger issues. Uh, there's a large case involving affirmative action and college admissions that will be coming up um, that was certain to make headlines um, about whether or not um, racial preferencing is discriminatory and also if it's discriminatory against um, particularly Asian students in this case. Um, there are some administrative law opinions, um, as always. There's a pair of cases, Axon versus FTC and um, SEC versus Cochrane, that um, that will decide some issues of federal jurisdiction or whether constitutional claims need to be heard, like in house, like in that agency, um, or if that can go, if that needs to go to federal court, as it would in pretty much any other case. Um, that's a, a narrow and kind of wonky case, but I think it's pretty significant in terms of where the court's going um, in, in administrative law. There's a copyright case as well uh, that involves the Andy Warhol Foundation that the court's going to kind of explore what is fair use, what is not fair use when it comes to reproducing certain images in which he did not have a license currently to do so. Andy Warhol still causing trouble in the year of our Lord, 2023. <laughs> uh, Ashley Baker joining us. Let, let's one more thing about this Supreme Court though. People do, look, it's a narrative. I don't like it because I don't like to waste my time on things that are a waste of my time. There's this whole narrative in the news media about the legitimacy of the Supreme Court. Well, the, the Supreme Court, <laughs> I understand the terminology of legitimacy, but the problem is legitimacy is in the eye of the beholder and these people have lifetime appointments. So it really doesn't matter whether you think they're legitimate or not. However, having said that, I wonder if this is one of those things where it's just people are more aware of how it works in the inner workings and they're applying it through the polarized political filter. I think that's more the story. People are viewing the court because the court, you know, it comes and goes. It gets liberal. It gets more conservative. It'll swing back more liberal at some point. These things go in cycles. I think people's awareness of it is just higher. And with social media, people like to use it for their own means. I think it's how we're viewing the court as the real story here more so than the court itself. Is that a fair way do you think you put it? I think so too. I, I mean, the 
bigger problem here is that people view the courts as making policy. And when that policy has kind of gone their way for many years, and now it's suddenly not, you, you see this huge outcry when really the outcome and job just means that you know, this decision is not the job of the Supreme Court. We return this to the legislature, to those who are represented by the people, those who are the you know, elected representatives that are closest. So it's not, you know, it's that they gave away power. You'll notice you don't see anyone really making any strong arguments for why Roe should have been upheld. It's more of, you know, why not to overturn Roe. And if, at the end of the day, I think Alito did a really fantastic job in his opinion. I think that's one thing that's a little bit underappreciated just because of all the discussion of, uh, around the leak is how great of a job Justice Alito did and just kind of laying out several reasons of which you, you know, kind of look towards and deciding whether or not a precedent should be overturned. And at the end of the day, he says, um, look, Roe held that there's an abortion, right? Supposedly somewhere in the first or fourth or the ninth or 14th amendments. But, you know, where is it? Um, they can't pinpoint a certain those who are in favor of Roe can't pinpoint exactly necessarily where that is. Um, and things kind of with Casey and other precedents just kind of evolve from there. So if it's not in the Constitution, then it's up to the elected representatives to decide. Right. Ashley Baker joining us now. Of course, our progressive friends and those that support abortion rights are going to disagree with Alito, usually pretty loudly. Here's the thing. This is all these state laws that were enacted. Some had trigger laws. Some went back to the legislator after this happened. There's going to be this is not the end of the abortion debate. This is the middle of the beginning of the end of the beginning. Right. We're going to see more court cases in the future with all these new state laws coming and all this. How long a period do you think it is before the Supreme Court takes up abortion again? Three years, five years? Will it be the next court after the Roberts court? At some point, we're going to go through this again. What do you think the time frame is going to be? Well, I don't think it would be the context of Roe specific. I mean, Roe, that was one of the good things, and from my perspective, and Roe being directly overturned and not just kind of left hanging, um, such as the court has done in, in certain First Amendment cases, for example, and, and not fully overturning something. I mean, this is one of the first times um, in, you know, in 200 years almost that the Supreme Court has kind of relinquished power to the legislatures. So any case that involves, you know, those state laws might, you know, come in a different a different form, um, whether that's in the realm of administrative law and, or commerce or, or something kind of more specific to that, but, you know, whether or not there's a constitutional right to an abortion, that issue has been pretty well settled now. Ashley Baker. Okay, this was heavy stuff. Let's have a little bit of fun. One of the internet, especially Twitter and Facebook's favorite things and favorite conspiracy theories is the marshal of the Supreme Court and what they do and don't do. One little ray of sunlight in this Dobbs thing. We actually had a legitimate sighting of the marshal of the Supreme Court and what they actually do. So break the meme down and the conspiracy theory down for what does the marshal of the Supreme Court actually do since we actually got to see them do their job here? Well, if you look at the the process involving the investigation, I, I don't know how the more I think that kind of started as a little bit of a joke because it is called Marshall of the Supreme Court. And it, it sounds, um, you know, you can imagine someone and what they what they might be wearing and see, like it's a you know 18th century sort of um, depiction. But you know, there in, in terms of the processes um, involving you know the security of the court itself of the you know premises of the justices, um, they run that whole operation sort of. Yeah, I think people think it's like Black Rod at the opening of Parliament in UK. They got the big fancy hat and a big stick and they bang on the door. And it, yeah, no, that's not what it is. The stick. All right. A little bit of look, even the Supreme Court's got to have some fun once in a while. Right. Uh, Ashley Baker, she's with the Committee for Justice. She also does some antitrust stuff. We're going to have her back to talk about that. 
But my friend, until we get you on Hertel again, let folks know where they can find you, how they can follow you and keep up with what you're doing until we talk to you again. Sure. And thanks again for having me. So you can find our website is committeeforjustice.org or you can find me on Twitter. Um, my Twitter handle is and Ashley says, and you can find me there under Ashley Baker. We will do it. We're going to link to all this stuff. We'll link to the various things she has. I'm also going to link to that direct report. Like we just said, read it yourself. Sort document. It's short. It's only about two pages. And the Chertoff stuff's about another six pages. Read it for yourself. Ashley Baker, really appreciate the time. We'll do it again soon, my friend. Thank you. Ah, welcome back to Herd Tell. Okay, when we got to talk environmental stuff, this is one of our go-tos, Ethan Brown. You have heard his advertisement for his excellent Sweaty Penguin program. Yes, that's Sweaty Penguin. It's a great name. It's a great program. Uses a lot of humor. You've heard that advertised right here on Herd Tell, but we got the man himself today. Talk a little environmental news and headlines. Ethan, how are you, sir? Great to have you back on Herd Tell. I'm good. Thanks for having me. Uh, we have these people. Look, everybody has a right to protest, especially in America. How you protest, though, is open to interpretation. And once you start doing certain things, you're no longer protesting or breaking the law. Over in the UK, uh, these Extinction Rebellion knuckleheads, uh, this is not how to protest, neither to get people to enjoy your cause or to get your message out or anything else. Here's why I think that's a bad method, because you're screwing with the normies. The normies that don't follow this stuff, don't interrupt their daily life. Don't make them late for work. Don't do, that, that's never going to get your message across. That just ticks people off. You were writing about it. You wrote about it in PBS Peril and Promise here, though. I think even they are starting to realize, especially if they want the fundraising to continue, they're going to have to change course here. And it looks like they might actually be listening to a message for a change. Yeah, they've uh, been famous for climbing oil tankers, gluing themselves to paintings. They even tweeted that I was trying to delay meaningful climate action after I wrote a column saying that Don't Look Up was a stupid movie. <laughs> and I, yeah, that's not going to win you much support. And they, at the end of 2022, posted a piece on their website titled, We Quit. I'll pull it up for a second. They said, as we ring in the new year, we make a controversial resolution to temporarily shift away from public disruption as a primary tactic uh, they're going to be putting relationships over roadblocks. And yeah, that's that's a good thing, I guess. We'll see if they follow through on that. But I wrote this piece to kind of say, hey, if you're really faithful to this, I think it could be good for you. Let's be adults here. They're not doing this because they want to stop doing the publicity stuff. They're getting to a place where they have to because it's putting them in an untenable position to continue it because people are fed up with it. I'm assuming probably whoever's funding this is probably having an issue with it. That's usually how these decisions really get made. And let's be honest, somebody's putting a lot of money behind this because they're getting access to places. They're well-funded. They have matching T-shirts. Somebody's paying for all this. Some combination of those factors is what's driving this. It's not altruism, is it? I have no idea. I think <laughs> um, it, it could be any of those things. I would imagine just me personally speaking that if you can 
have the impact you desire on the environmental movement without getting yourself arrested all the time, that that would be a good thing. And certainly that's the path I've chosen to take. But yeah, it, it could be any number of reasons, but certainly they have to be seeing that this strategy of causing this much public disruption is only driving people away. Yeah. So now I can already hear it is like, okay, the two white guys that are nicely dressed and comfortably sitting in their homes are complaining about the protesters. Fair enough. Here's here's where I draw some lines. I'm not a huge fan of the going and chaining yourself to the tree on the piece of property that's going to be developed, but I can logically get my head around that one, right? You're you're physically stopping, you're putting a little skin in the game, you're dealing with the developers and the construction crew. I at least logically understand that one, right? I don't like the climbing the tower or climbing the tree. You know, I don't like it. I understand it. To me, that still falls under the realm of protest, even though if you're trespassing those sorts of things, you start pushing the boundaries of breaking the law. And once you're breaking the law, you're no longer protesting. I get I can understand that when you're just harassing average people who you have no idea what they believe. That's where it's a big drawn red line with me of, okay, now you're just being a jackass. Now you're just harassed. These aren't people that are directly involved. At least protest a company, a development, a political figure. You know, focus your attention. If you're just disrupting cities full of people, that's not only, you know, not helpful to your cause. That's its own kind of bad because now you're just messing with people's lives and livelihoods that may not have anything to do with what you're upset about. Yeah, maybe I should have started from here. I fully respect people's right to protest, right to free speech. I think it's very admirable, honestly, that someone's willing to put their body on the line for a cause they believe in. I think in this particular case, for example, we saw in 2022 uh, some of the Extinction Rebellion folks, it was largely a group called Just Stop Oil, which is over in the UK, that were doing a lot with famous paintings, gluing themselves to them, throwing soup at them. You saw headlines like this every week throughout the fall. And that's where it's a little strange to me because the paintings have literally nothing to do with climate. And the only way people even find out it had to do with climate is if they read past the headline. And what a lot of the activists were saying, so I did try to listen to them and understand why they were trying to do this. They felt that people were just so unaware of the climate crisis that they had to do something that drastic. They would make it akin to people were sleepwalking and we have to wake them up. And I just don't think that's true. I think people are aware. I think there is a lot of progress going on. Obviously, we need to do more. There's a lot more that can be done that can be beneficial, but it just didn't square to me to have that visceral reaction to the state of uh, what's going on right now. Yeah, Ethan Brown joining us, host of The Sweaty Penguin. He also works through PBS. We're going to link to all his stuff. Here's where I think some elements of the environmental movement have really got a problem on their hands. 
they've got two things happening at once. One is they're getting more and more on social media, which people see more and more of what they're doing. And if you're doing this extreme stuff, people don't like it. So you're almost self-telegraphing yourself into a corner of being irrelevant or pushed off as a crank. The other problem they got is that same technology is also informing people of what's going on in the environment. This isn't the 70s. This isn't the 50s where you just get a newsreel of a nuclear blast and everybody freaks out. People understand that, yes, even if you think there's major environmental problems going on in the world, and there are, there's also great progress being made. I think the extremism is getting so far off base of the actual reporting of what's going on. I think the doomsayers, I'm just talking about the people that are constantly you know, going Al Gore of we're 10 years from destruction, which he said 14 and a half years ago, that kind of stuff just turns people off. But technology just reveals it. It's like the old, you know, televangelist declaring the world's going to end. After the world ends, nobody wants to pay attention to you. I think that's just an inherent problem with the extremism of it. And a lot of folks, especially the ones that actually care, are trying to veer away from it. Is that a good way to read what's going on right now, big picture wise? Yeah, I think I saw you tweeted about the um, 90 seconds to midnight doomsday clock or whatever. And I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? I I don't know where that number comes from. I, I haven't researched it that much uh, in all fairness, but the idea that we're all going extinct on Thursday is just ridiculous. And I've talked about this before. I think this is where some of the more extreme environmental folks and I very starkly differ is yes, climate change is a big problem and we are seeing a lot of extreme weather events and natural disasters that are being fueled by climate change around the world that are causing deaths, that are causing injuries and people's homes being lost and money lost and all these different things. But these are isolated events that taken together are cause for concern. There's not one, it's not like don't look up where you have a comet that's going to hit the earth and just kill everyone all at once. And I think there's a lot of nuance to this. Furthermore, if we go back in history and we look at any cases of people kind of degrading their environment and it, it's just never led to extinction. Populations can collapse, but they someone always finds a way to hold up and live on. So just the name Extinction Rebellion, I've always wondered, like if you're talking about biodiversity, sure, there's an extinction crisis. If you're talking humans, we're just not on that trajectory. So I don't know. I think um, there's definitely room to be concerned, but also a lot of room to be optimistic because like you say, we are making progress in many areas. Yeah, Ethan Brown, let's take the other, look, there's two sides to the extremism here. Let's take the other side, the folks that just think any kind of environmental concern whatsoever, or any kind of climate concern whatsoever, oh, it's a big hoax. Oh, it's all a religion. Yes, there's elements of that. Part of the problem here is we can't have a dialogue about it because each extreme only acknowledges that the other extreme exists and then forgets there's this big spectrum of people in the middle. This is why you take the approach you do. You use humor, you use logic, you try to talk about it in practical terms. I think what needs to be happening here is a lot less the big picture, the world's going to end stuff. Give people bite-sized stuff they can handle. Clear-cut logging, they can understand that one. Strip coal mining, they can understand that one. Both of those are from, you look, I the property right next to ours got clear-cut logging, has been vacant for 25 years. Eats me up every time I go home. Practical stuff like that. People want clean drinking water. People don't want smog. Why can't we just focus on those practical things? And I know the answer is the extremes make more money. 
But there's a lot of people that want to talk about those issues, but can't because you got the two ramparts throwing bullets at each other, right? Yeah, my dad told me about a year ago, if the extremists are pissed off at you, you're the rational person in the room and you're doing something right. And I have really held to that since he said that to me. I think you're right. There's kind of been this labeling of the climate deniers on this side, the climate doomers on that side. And to me, it's so much more of a fluid spectrum. And I think there's a large middle that most of us are in where um, maybe our levels of passion might be different, but we all understand there is an issue going on. We're not all going extinct, but we do have to do something about this. And furthermore, you're right. Everyone wants clean air, clean water, and a healthy environment. That is not controversial. How we get there, there's room for debate, but that premise is very easy to wrap our heads around. Furthermore, when we get into how climate and pollution and biodiversity loss can affect our economy, we'll see that there are monetary losses due to these issues, and I think everyone wants a healthy economy. So I do think there's a lot of room for common ground here. I guess that's what. I'm trying to figure out in my career is how do I cut through all that and get a rational voice heard. And I hope at least through my podcast, obviously I've tried to add a comedic element. I think especially a lot of young people are uh, responding to comedy and will tune into something because it's funny and then they'll kind of get the information. I also think emphasizing solutions, just doing so much critical thinking and nuance. All of these are ways that can get people engaged and get people feeling less overwhelmed. But it's certainly a challenge when you don't get all the clickbaity headlines. Yeah, Ethan Brown joining us. I feel like I ask you this every time you're on, but I'm going to ask you again because I'm just going to keep hammering it because I think people need to hear it. We don't do enough talking about how far we've come in environmental progress. You know, the Cahoga River in Cleveland hasn't caught on fire anytime recently. I, rem- I can drive by the alloy plant, the big steel mill that my grandfather worked on. And and I know people that work there and they tell me they're like, oh, no, if you see anything being admitted from the plant, that means something went wrong. Everything out of there should be clean paper. And I can show you pictures in my lifetime where you can't see down that valley. How do we talk about that kind of stuff? It seems to me the best way to combat doomsaying and denialism and the two extremes is just get some practical stuff. Just get some pictures of the cars in the 70s and the gas crisis and be like, just look at this. Things are better now, but we don't want to talk about the good things. Yeah, things have improved so much. And the United States emissions have been falling since 2005. I think they've fallen around 20% since then. Globally, uh, when the in 2015, the Paris Agreement was signed. The world was on track to warm by like four degrees Celsius. Now we're on track to warm by about 2.6 degrees Celsius. That's still not where we want to end up, but it's a whole lot better than four. We've fended off a lot of the kind of climate tipping points by getting from four to 2.6, and hopefully we can bring that number down even further. So You're right. There's a lot of progress and that's just big picture. If we go locally, you can go to so many different communities and see, uh, like you said, the rivers being cleaned up. There were just uh, last week, I think dolphins were spotted in a river in the Bronx for the first time in years because pollution had been cleaned up in that river. So, so much exciting stuff going on. And I think that keeps me energized working in climate and I hope people can recognize that and use that as motivation to continue making progress. Yeah, Ethan Brown, I appreciate your take on this. Look, environments like a lot of other things, like education, like politics, like policy, like the economy, 
we don't have to agree on every little in and out of it. I think that's part of the problem. Number one is everybody's like, oh, well, we have to agree on everything or you're my enemy. No, no, no. We can get to 80 or 90 percent on a lot of this stuff just on common sense. And I think you try to do that. So until we get you back on the program again, let folks know where they can find you, what you got going on. The Sweaty Penguin is advertised right here on Hertel. Let folks know about that because it's better when you say it than when I say it. And let folks know how to keep up with you until we get you back on the program. Yeah, thanks again for having me, Andrew. The Sweaty Penguin is a comedy climate podcast where we are making climate change less overwhelming, less politicized, and more fun. We are presented by PBS's National Climate Initiative, Peril and Promise, which is also where you can find the column on the Extinction Rebellion that I just wrote. And you can also find us anywhere you get your podcasts, Apple, Spotify, etc. You can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash the sweaty penguin. I just had a meeting with one of my producers this morning. We've got some cool Patreon stuff in the works. So do go check that out and support our work. Yep, you do good work. You'll continue to be a regular. Ethan Brown, appreciate you, my friend. Thanks. Thank you, sir. All the music on Hertel is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on the Hurt Tell Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, Head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics, from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutans. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find The Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcasts or at www.thesweatypenguin.com.